You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. Today is a critics roundtable conversation. Uh, I did one of these with a couple of these gentlemen uh, back in December, and I really had a blast doing it. Um, Matt Seneca and Joe McAuliffe were on uh, to discuss the year's best comics, and Tucker Stone, the other person joining us today, was on a couple of years ago for one of the year-end shows and Tucker is always um, good at being mouthy about comics. I'm sorry if that's <laughs> not a good description, Tucker. It, it seems the most apropos. Um, and so what I want to try doing is every couple of months uh, do one of these where I have some critics on and we kind of discuss a range of comics that have come out recently um, that have stuck out to us. They don't necessarily have to just be recent comics. Uh, you'll see in the list that we have coming up uh, some are recent reprints, uh, a couple of them are very new, new comics, and one or a couple just stuff from the past that I don't know is relevant now or not, uh, it's relevant for certain people, um, but it's discussion of comics, and I think part of my interest is kind of continuing this discussion of the narrative and seeing the narratives pop up, and also dishing about comics in general. So hopefully this doesn't feel too much like an episode of Comic Book Men. Um, I think we should be fine. I'm not going to be your Kevin Smith. I just okay. saw I just saw part of an episode of Comic Book Men in a bar like last weekend. Like they were playing The Walking Dead and they just leave the channel on. And it was just, just Kevin Smith speaking into a podcast microphone in silence. And like dudes rubbing their hands on the Batmobile. It was a very surreal experience. That would drive me to drink. Season end. Bars get depressing. <laughs> it's like a scene out of a Bukowski short story. I'm hoping we can recapture that flavor in today's show. <laughs> well, I have been working on my beard, so we'll see how that goes. Um, so I don't know if anyone has any particular title they want to jump out with first. Um I'm gonna. I, I I figure let's just go with the one I'm most excited about of this stack, um, as far as work that I just really enjoyed reading, um, and that was the cabbie. Um, awesome. Yeah. Uh, just uh, put out a couple months ago by Marty, uh, Fanographics collecting stuff that had been collected in the past, including in issues of Raw. Um, my immediate thoughts on reading the book is if they ever do do a movie, Jason Statham has to play the cabbie. You may disagree. I don't know. What the cabbie's a, the cabbie's kind of a wacky dude. I don't know how how much wacky Jason Statham can do. He's like nah, like half the time. Yeah, he just exudes. Yeah, Jason Statham exudes competence. I mean, the cabbie just kind of needs to be somebody who's a little surprised by his own proficiency. I feel like. Well, did you ever see the um, the Expendables? That no, I, I never saw. I, I relied on Joe for that one. I, I did see the Expendables. I enjoyed uh, Terry Crews shooting people with his gun. Uh, some of the action scenes made sense, like they were lit correctly. And I can tell what was happening, which, which I couldn't say for all of them. Uh, Jet Li rode around in the back of a truck for a while, uh, yeah. and yeah, Mickey Rourke said some things. Did he? Or did he just kind of grunt them through his teeth? No, he, he, he tattoos people in that movie. Yeah, he, he he spoke directly into my soul, like in the middle of my chest, my soul, Mickey Rourke. <laughs> so how does the cabbie uh, stand out for you guys being a work that was published 
originally in the uh, in the seventies in Spain. Well, I uh, I mean I my contact with the cabbie came through the old uh, Caitlin Communications edition, which. Uh, uh, came out in the late 80s, like 87 about, and, you know, they got Art Spiegelman to do the introduction where he, you know, laid out the Dick Tracy connection, because, like, the cabbie's kind of a, um, I don't even know if it's fake or not, but I guess it's kind of a fake, like, daily crime uh, comic strip kind of thing, as if it's like a collection of daily strips uh, in the Dick Tracy mold, and it's just this uh, totally crazy thing about, uh, I guess politics in Spain at the time, um, with this lawman just running rampant. It, it's got these manic cliffhangers that go nowhere. The book ends with basically no resolution whatsoever, and there actually was more to come, which unfortunately Caitlin never got to doing. Fanographics is supposed to be doing it if the uh, first book does well enough, but that, that's kind well, of the state are, of the they are. They're, they're, they're going right. to do more of this, and they're going to do more of his other stuff as well. Um, they're not right. going to do it this year, but it's, it is coming. Yeah, he, he had uh, an Ignatz book, too, uh, Calvero Hills or something, with, with Chad the Cabbie in it. He was uh, the backup story, New Adventures of the Cabbie. That, uh, that kind of went nowhere, <laughs> perhaps a bit like the Ignatz line itself. But uh, that was his newer stuff, so I think they're going to kind of fill in the gaps then from there to here. But, yeah, the Cabbie's just uh, awesome. It's just a, a really fun, really bizarrely humored experience it, it it it's a little broader in humor than you'd kind of think from thinking that it's just like well it's just a dick tracy riff only with fascism in it there, there is some pretty broad humor like the guy's really worrisome and running around from place to place and there's antics and stuff but it's they're they're great antics it's it's got this velocity to it that you'd expect from a really strong daily strip like in terms of structure he really really nails that like it hums really well like a continuing adventure thing but it's it's absurd everything is hyped up to the point where it it's completely crazy you have to laugh at it you know like his sister the prostitute that is um tricking out the daughter of the guy he puts in jail oh sure there's 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 people flying through the sewers there's bodies in boxes his mom's like hanging from the ceiling it's it's terrific oh yeah wasn't she like hanging upside down when he came into the house i love yeah. that in the house his father's coffin has been placed on top of his mother's body like washing yeah. it puts it when he puts them together he... <laughs> That that's his idea of putting them together. There's no conception like I'm gonna take the father's body out of the coffin. It's like no, he's in the coffin and just gonna rest on top of her body, and then I'm gonna pray to it. <laughs> yes, it's also uh, very big on uh, Catholicism and the uh, all the implications and iconography surrounding it. Yeah, that was my favorite part. It's like it's almost like Chester Brown in how in um paying for it god this book just keeps coming up um <laughs> you're like, the one bringing it up just saying i know i'm surprised <laughs> too um but like the way that he would show this like divine light during the sex scenes and that it's like that happens whenever there's a really really good cliffhanger it's like everything stops and there's like this pinpoint halo of light that surrounds everything and it's like it's really bizarre because everything else is just so sorted but um but some of the scenes in there and the way he'll frame things too to like call back to classical paintings and stuff, which is weird when it's drawn in the Dick Tracy style of all things. 
yes, and, like, yes. is it this weird, like, divine sort of stained glass feel that is just so bizarre given the content? But um, it's it's really humorous and also really disturbing in a way yeah, that maybe yeah. only Johnny Ryan has been in comics. The, the guy's got this, like, rictus grin on his face for so much of the time, and it's, it, it's of course, a false happiness because he's totally neurotic and horrible, but it, it like, I'm right now I have it open, and I'm looking at this one strip where he's, like, getting out of a car with, like, uh, flowers in his hand, and he's just, just the most perfect smile on his face, and then, like, exclamation points are coming out of his head while he looks at a rat knifed on a door with, rats like you end up like this one, like, smeared on the door. <laughs> It's that kind of comic. Um, considering when it came out, were there any other contemporary examples of kind of, I don't want to say mashup, because the whole concept bothers me of mashup, but where you're taking, um, you're riffing on previous comic strips in this kind of context or previous style of comic books, other than Mad Magazine. Spiegelman did a comic like that, didn't he? With uh. I can't, it's slipping my mind, but some old comic strip where he cut out panels and then, like, collaged them into some crazy story. Mm-hmm. No, I know the one you're talking about. Anyway. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't speak for uh, the time it came out in the Spanish comic scene because I'm just totally clueless about that. I know, uh, I know Caitlin uh, in the 80s had out, you know, a couple things kind of like that, like, you know, a Matt knows about uh, Massimo Matole's, uh, you know, Squeak the Mouse and uh, those kind of comics. Those, oh yeah. I, mean, I don't, I don't know exactly who they were trying to do, but they, they were kind of an, a mis, more of a miscellaneous like old comic style gone wacky, which I guess is an American underground thing too. Although you know the Air Pirates modeled themselves after particular cartoonists as well, so they they would be a forebear on a different country at least. Mm-hmm. It almost seems like. There's something connect connecting with um, what Chester was doing with Louis Riel and the Harold Gray style. Yeah, that he he uh, Marty draws dudes running just like Harold Gray. It's great. Well, I just mean that same kind of way of taking from a different type of strip. Yeah, yeah. And utilizing that to tell your own story. I don't know. Um. So, would you all recommend folks read it? I would. I I don't know if um. I don't know how well any of the Euro releases that aren't Jacques Tardy are doing, but then again, it took like 20 years for people to catch on to Tardy, too, so maybe uh, Marty's time is coming. I think, especially if you like like old, old-ish uh, comic strips, like old continuing narrative newspaper comic strips stacked in a row, that's I really can't emphasize enough how well he nails the feel of how this is supposed to be and then kind of makes it awful and terrible and disturbing and funny. I, I think it would work well for people who are kind of into older strips like that, even if it's not like Dick Tracy. Like, I can even see bits of uh, Floyd Godfordson's Mickey Mouse in this, almost. <laughs> which, uh... <laughs> so I think I, it's... I, to I totally recommend this to the kids that love Mickey. <laughs> I think I agree, but it's super contemporary too. I mean, like, if you like Ben Mara and Johnny Ryan comics, this is like right up your alley. It's the same exact type of content, but, and I mean, those things kind of call back ironically to older cartooning traditions too. But this is such a incredible. It really is incredible how well he nails Chester Gould's style and then like expands on it and does awesome things with it. Um, but just the, the content to me feels like 
if this came out now, it would feel like a completely, totally modern comic to me. I'm really surprised by how well it's aged from the 70s to now. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about, like, we're seeing a lot of European reprints coming out right now with, like, the cabbie and some of the other books we're going to discuss. And there's something in me that's, like, jumping out that, like, the reprints we're seeing, they're very, they're chosen with a certain aesthetic. I mean, obviously, because most of it's either Kim Thompson or whatever the, whoever is in charge. Is someone in charge at Humanoids? I don't know. Um, But it, what are we missing that we should be seeing that, that you think would excite people? Bilal. X. Okay, f- who was the first one there? Uh, Bilal. Okay. I think, yeah, I think you gotta, like the woman trap, I think uh, all that stuff. I, I think anything by him, but specifically like the Nicopole trilogy, that should be a lot more easily available. The hunting party. Um, I'm able to find that stuff. The uh, the Chaos Effect reprint book, that soft cover that reprints uh, Bilal's Hunting Party and uh, the Black Order Brigade. Mm-hmm. And anytime people see, like I have that for the store, and it's anytime I can get any copies, they sell out within just hours. People love that stuff. Now, and it's not always just people who know what it is. It's just people look at that stuff, and it's just it speaks to them, and they want to have it. I mean, that's Bilal was like such a big deal in American film culture. Like he was like the guy. You know, we were relying on his. With Michael Mann was the guy who said like Bilal's, what we've been stealing from for years, and it's like I think people just know what that is. It's in their bloodstream. When they see it, they want it. But you can't get any of that stuff in English. I mean, even Mobius stuff pops up more frequently now than Bilal does. Yeah, someone actually brought Bilal up at uh, the Jacques Tardy panel at SPX last year that Kim Thompson uh, hosted. He he asked if anyone had any European cartoonists they were interested in, and. Uh, Bilal was pretty much the first word uh, out of the first person's mouth, and uh, I think Kim Kim basically said something to the tune of that, you know, he, he respects Bilal's uh, skills, uh, he's not really a cartoonist he's interested in, and uh, basically Fanagraphics would rather publish the cartoonist that they really are interested in before uh, mm. somebody else, basically, so... I know uh, Heavy Metal is actually serializing one of Bilal's newer albums right now, but, I mean, wading into Heavy Metal is such a total <laughs> crapshoot. Yeah, that's a... <laughs> but but he is... He, <laughs> he does have uh, a certain presence in the English language now, a very small blink-and-you'll-miss-it presence, but he is getting published, kind of. I would like to see a lot of uh, nicer stuff. I'd also personally like to see... Uh, a bunch more Breccia, uh, Alberto Breccia, who oh, is, yeah. Uh, yeah, who is an Argentinian uh, cartoonist and pretty much, pretty much set the uh, aesthetic stage for quite a lot of Spanish cartooning. Speaking when of I, Marty, when I interviewed me. Lorenzo Matade, that was like the one guy who he like kept going on about. Yeah, was, he was. was he was tight with uh, Hugo Pratt. Apparently, uh, one time Hugo Pratt called him a whore, and that made his art get a lot better. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, and and he was just such a tremendous influence on. Really, you look in the seventies, Spanish comics in the seventies. That's uh, all the guys who were working at Warren and like Creepy and Eerie and Vampirella. A ton of mm-hmm. Spanish dudes. They're all total devotees of Breccia, and I think. Uh, 
Paramus was from Fantagraphics is like the only thing of his that I've ever even There's seen in English. Two stories in heavy metal. All right, all right. I'm, I'm sure he showed up somewhere in there too. Yeah, but I don't know but, the Fantagraphics book. I'll have to look for that. It was like uh, it was like magazine-sized comics uh, that were never collected. But like yeah. when they were publishing Sinner. Yeah, exactly in that format, actually. And fuck, I mean, uh, uh, Munoz and Simpio are also too. They they have in uh, I know France these huge Alax Sinner collections, just two of them collecting the whole thing, and that would be so terrific to have because I mean that you want to talk about influence. Uh, Munoz is the kind of dude Frank Miller was looking at when he was uh, really changing his style up for Sin City, the early Alax Sinner stuff. That's that's hugely influential on that, but it just got so so crazy dreamlike and swooshing and just exterior shots of buildings at the best moments it's it's like you've gone to sleep when you're reading those comics it it, it changes your head frame so much man mm -hmm. joe's bar it was amazing when i first read it just seeing how much frank miller had taken from that to set up sin city just of how you can take a story or a series of stories and all have them interrelate in this wider purpose i don't know yeah, it's, it's just terrific stuff. I'd love to see that. Um, I mean, I don't know how much these South American-type uh, cartoonists would click, but it, it's something i definitely like to see a lot more of because I think it's it's both been quietly influential and it's very, very interesting. I think it really clicks with the, maybe not current, but, you know, definite interest now in real meat and potatoes, like, you know, art craft, like uh, people who can really draw figures and forms and stuff. I mean, those guys... I mean, some of those guys, the Spanish guys, they relied real heavy on photo reference, but, uh, I mean, Breccia could always make it work terrifically. Him and, you know... Uh, Solano no. Lopez? Yeah, Solano Lopez, him too, is awesome. The late who, Solano who, Lopez. And both of them learnt under Hugo Pratt in Argentina. Yeah. Who's publishing the new uh, Cordo Maltese stuff? I forget. Universe Rizzoli, and I actually have that sitting next to me on my desk. Oh, wow. How's the color look? The color's okay. It's uh, kind of muted. Um, you know, it's not like DC Humanoids coloring on it. Okay. So, um, the lettering bothers me a little because it's all very widespread letters, very flat looking. All right. Um, well, but... John Berkman lettered those for the original translations, and his stuff is pretty wide and flat. I think the it may be... Yeah, it might be the same type of font, but I think I'm thinking it's a newer translation um, than the previous MBM ones because that would be probably a crime. Who, who did you suggest, Matt? You suggested someone. I said Krapax. Oh um, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, totally. duh, you know, anybody who knows my writing. But I mean, okay, so Guido Krapax is my favorite cartoonist ever. Um, I think he's just the cat's pajamas and um and i also think that he is something that if he were to be introduced to the american comics market right now he would hit like a fucking atom bomb um it's because we we're starting to see with stuff like thickness coming out and also this um these new uh, milo Monero books that dark horse is putting out are getting yeah. a lot of positive attention um so and there's like this sort of uh renewed interest or maybe just a new interest in America in like erotic comics and I think Krapax did by far the best erotic comics ever 
and he not only did like just good porn that that you know I guess works as porn but um is just interesting it's just fascinating as like drawings of the human figure in motion in action like it's some of the best if you want to talk about action scenes just physical action the human body doing things like Krapax is up there with Kirby with you know Hugo Pratt um with Roy Crane with all the the great action artists but it's also his 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 line work like Valentina is just so wonderfully psychological and so deep in a yeah. way I mean only the very very best graphic novelists here in America dudes like Chris Ware and I don't know maybe Josh Cotter have gotten that at all the way he's able to trace it's like this thousands and thousands of page saga where he traces like the psychosexual biography of this one woman from her birth which is and it's it's incredible he alludes to other comics like Alex Raymond stuff and um and Hal Foster to like sort of explain some of her sexual fantasies and like it's just so literate and so so beautifully drawn his art is just it'll just break your heart looking at that stuff and you connect emotionally to it so well that I think it's just it's just comics operating at the highest levels and I think we need Krupax on our shelves in our language yeah I think uh, comparing Krupax and Monera is uh, it's really a good segue yeah of course <laughs> yes it is but it, that that's really good that you say that because the I sense like a really intense empathy I guess in Krupax's lines the way he, he draws women especially since he's doing like you know some pretty pretty hardline uh, S&M bondage domination type comics I think the most recent thing he had out in English was NBM actually put out a pretty nice oversized uh, version of his The Story of O yeah. uh, but it's not just that you know he's adapting some works of Story of O or Emmanuel that were written by women uh, originally I think there's, there's uh, this intense like bodily uh, <clears throat> this physicality to his women where they seem like they're alive where you can kind of sense things about them and understand them as fellow humans I guess to be a little pompous which I don't really get from Minera who draws very very lovely looking women but it, especially in his more recent work there's a real sameness and almost like alien texture to his woman where it's like it's like there's idolatry but not empathy there if you know what I mean Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like um, almost as if they're an other. There's this beautiful thing that men can desire, but they can never really understand. And it's, um, I, I guess you can call it the difference between uh, softcore and hardcore porn, in that Monero's a type of softcore porn, and that it's all very designy. And, you know, it's very beautifully made. It's very, very lovely. Uh, well-drawn in a kind of mid-century adventure strip tradition with, you know, bits of Moebius and Crumb as well, but uh, it's also perfectly positioned and solid, and it's like nobody makes an uncertain move, really, ever. It's like uh, it's like how Michael Bay positions women in his movies, kind of, like they're part of his design sensibility. You can't ever really think of somebody having an orgasm in a Michael Bay movie, even when he's doing, like, a Playboy video centerfold, which I think was his first directorial thing outside of <laughs> commercials and music videos. You, you can't think of things like that. And I mean, Minera, of course, has those things in his uh, comics, but it's still a little, uh, little tinto brassy, you know, kind of a 
kind of like that, to name a fellow Italian. But yeah, well, I... Um, there are shots away from sex, too. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but even his hardest core stuff, it's like, it's all tease. And then when it's the sex scene, it's usually really short. There's like a couple angles. But Krapax is like, it's like he wants to get literally inside people's bodies. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't think Madero likes to draw penises. Yeah, he yeah. doesn't. You can tell. He's not very good at it. Well, that's well, that's the uh, that's the old rationale between softcore porn still existing for uh, a lot of guys. You know, don't like looking at uh, men's anatomy. They maybe get jealous at the idea of guys having sex that aren't them. Not not every guy who looks at softcore porn, but you know, it, it's in that way. It's a very designy celebration of the female form without the real mess of fucking to it. And I think that's kind of characterizes Madeira's stuff a little. And I like Madeira's work. I like his art, but there. You know, you compare him to Creepax, and the difference is pretty obvious, I think. So, just so that folks know, uh, Dark Horse recently released uh, two volumes so far of the quote-unquote Monero Library, um, highly priced collections, um, I guess eventually completing everything that's published by Monero. Um, the first two volumes uh, kind of headlined by collaborations with uh, Hugo Pratt, um, who we've mentioned earlier, kind of the godfather for a lot of the folks we're discussing. And how do you guys feel about the choice of how to start out those volumes with, uh, especially Indian Summer, which I don't think is the strongest Minera Pratt collaboration? I think Indian, Indian Summer's fantastic. I love that comic. Indian Summer uh, kind of messed me up a little. Um, it helps <laughs> to discuss it more in the... Uh, I guess in the context of both of these books, I understand why they're doing the Pratt stuff first because it's another like recognizable comics master they can just pop on the cover, and a lot of this stuff is just out of print anyway. So uh, Catalan, I think, did both of them. NBM did. NBM, I'm sorry. Um, and so it's you know it's getting this stuff back in print. It beat all the Coral Maltese stuff back into print. So it's you know it's Hugo Pratt here now. It's Monera. Um, so I understand that. I think, um, like, the two Pratt books, they came out in different times. I think Indian Summer was the early 80s, and that was more of a freer-form collaboration with Pratt kind of doing the scenario and Minera doing the things. It's it's a much more visual work. There's hardly any words to start off it. Uh, there's this terrific scene of a guy getting shot in the head, and his body just jerks around perfectly as he expels blood. It's kind of... Uh, outstanding in that way. Lots of voyeuristic-ish scenes of guys looking at stuff. And uh, El Gaucho, which was, uh, I think, Pratt's last ever work in the early 90s. It was supposed to be a series, actually, but Pratt died uh, after the first book came out. Uh, and Pratt actually did that one, uh, manga, or I guess Mike Mignola-style writing it, where he actually did the breakdowns for Minera, and Minera kind of filled them in in a role as illustrator so it has a very different feel it's much uh denser it's more of i guess a mainline kind of european adventure comic sort of thing where it's uh it's got some high seas gallantry centering around the uh a british incursion into buenos Aires uh back in the day and there's just all sorts of stuff going on and then the stuff stops happening and there's a tragic ending and you kind of 
grasping at what it all means. And, you know, of course, it's the first volume of the series, so maybe it just means to get you on to the next thing. But it's a pretty rich thing. Uh, Monera actually proves to be something of a distraction. I, I wonder if, if having these breakdowns done for him made him just put all of his energies into the women, because there's a whole ship full of, like, Irish prostitutes uh, who've been purchased from, uh, you know, debtors' prisons, and just just in every scene he can, he has them, like, spreading their legs or grabbing each other and just lolling around in, in luxurious sensuality, and uh, that, that, that gets to be a little distracting. It doesn't always fit the plot entirely, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and then, this is in volume two, then in the back of volume two, we get to what I like to call the prize, which is a, a huge chunk of over a hundred pages of educational comics Manera did in the 70s. Is that this, some of his first published work? Is that the, some, It is some of his earliest published work. He did, I think he did like a Diabolique ripoff before that or something. But um, no, this is, these are for an Italian boys newspaper. It was written by the editor of the newspaper, Mino Milani. And it's this... It's the, it's the kind of thing you'd get in, like, when I was in elementary school, we had these things called weekly readers, where it's like a little shitty toilet paper magazine they'd give you, and you'd read about how street gangs are bad, and then there'd be a Funky Winker Bean comic that you'd laugh at. And uh, it, this kind of goes like that, in that it's like a mock trial where this judge, who's characterized entirely through headshots, like Phoenix Wright, only without any fun or excitement whatsoever, and he interrogates these notorious historical figures who give their side of their atrocious deeds, and then it segs into a Milo Manera comic, uh, an early Milo Manera comic, where he's relying on quite a lot of photo reference, noticeably. Um, but most of it's in black and white. It's a great guide to how many ways you can shade a black and white drawing, because he's got a really good aptitude at that stuff. Um, I, I think the most, uh, I think the quintessential example is the Helen of Troy uh, segment, where the judge is just talking to Helen of Troy, and it's the most it, it's it's the most risible thing in the world, he said to the all-male panel, where, where Helen of Troy is like, Oh my goodness, you're going to make me cry! And, um... <laughs> that was amazing. It's exactly... The comic isn't even about her. It's about, like, Achilles and Hector, like, having a huge sword fight. And Helen of Troy at the beginning of the end is posing, like, falling out of the single cloth she's wearing. Like, later in the book, they actually do their one and only appeals court edition where they redo the fucking Helen of Troy thing. So it's actually about Helen of Troy this time. I, I kind of wonder at the story behind that, but there, there's these little, these special little snatches of indoctrination you get from these comics where, you know, there's just one scene in, where, where like Helen of Troy is telling the judge, it's hard being beautiful, men want to rape me! And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. It, 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 they're just, it, it's just putting the, the locus of, of sexual assault totally on women being sexy, and that's like this little lesson that's being inserted into this boys comic educational well, comic for boys the, the thing with Minera is unfortunately that is a theme later in his work where this continuous women non-stop getting assaulted I think it's in uh, which one is it it's the Forbidden Planets I'm trying the to remember Planet oh no no it's the, uh, the Pandora's Eyes the most recent one that Humanoids put out alright is it that okay. one one of them where this woman just gets raped every day at 5 o'clock is that Fatal Rendezvous? Mate, that's it. Thank you. 
All right, that's actually one of the porn ones they're putting out in Volume 3. That's going to be the, the complete click uh, Fatal Rendezvous and something called Pierced, which, or Piercing, which, which sounds very <laughs> interesting. Um, but yeah, but, I mean, Indian Summer's like that. That's what's kind of messed me up about Indian Summer, because here Pratt is kind of writing about that, too, where it's this, it's this kind of poetical reflection on, on the wildness of a... And, of course, he's playing with Noble Savage, Stereotypes like out of James Fenmore Cooper, he's knowingly doing it and kind of trying to apply it not only to natives but to uh, colonists back in the day who would reject society and become driven by desire. And um, it, it, it's it turns into this, you know, there's these ruminations on like the Indian summer has come, you know, they are taking what they want. It is the wild times, which you know, fuck you. That's that that that's that's totally playing into kind of a, a societal apparatus, I suppose, uh, placing, you know, sexual violence as a, uh, an implicit part of uh, nature, I suppose, when it's, you know, I, I think it's pretty well set down that it's all about power, you know, power mechanics that he Pratt kind of addresses too, but of course then you have Minera making everything look as sexy as possible, including the rape scenes are made to look very sexy. Um, which, I mean, granted, all right, there, there's cultural considerations to take into place, and by cultural considerations, I mean whether, I suppose, innocent fantasies of uh, sexual domination are, are more acceptable to put in a fiction and work. I'm reminded of, like, the sequence later in the Meta Barons that Jodorowsky did with Jimenez, where, you know, the Meta Barons is a, the Meta Baron is a woman in this segment, like, one of the robots telling the story is like, oh, just the thought of a lusty paleo male thrusting his apparatus into the Meta Baron fries my diodes, and, um, and it's it, it's you know too much information. That's the joke, but that's also that that that's something you don't ever see in American comics. It's something people hesitate before they put in that kind of thing, even in a really kind of outrageous American comic. And you know, obviously, um, there's you know a lot of women targeted comics have you know submission uh, fantasies. You know, that's in Yaoi and. Uh, a lot of different things, you know, the the popularity of porn star James Dean D E E N uh, is in large part due to, you know, kind of a female idea of uh, being dominated by a man, which is you know a very cognizant fantasy. But I don't no. think there's really, I don't think there's any like female perspective in Manera's work like at all. Again, it's idolatry over empathy. I want to hear what uh, Tucker and Matt think of the Manera stuff. Let's. You guys are very quiet. I I I, I think uh, Matt should start off this thing because I know for in my if in Indian Summer like one of your favorite comics like of all time. Yeah, I like that comic a whole lot. Um, I think Joe nails a couple things that are interesting, but that maybe I have a different read on. I think that the um, it's it's like I see that as basically a book about myth or a book that's trying to be myth. Um, mm -hmm. At the end of Indian Summer, Pratt drops the gridded comic book format and goes into this sort of illustrated essay mode, um, and the color goes away and it's all sepia tone. <clears throat> and, um, and he starts telling about what actually happened um, in the story and like where these people that he had created characters out of ended up and what the for real history was, which 
then after reading that at the end, you're basically, you know, this isn't, you, you're forced to look on the work you just read as it's not something that's supposed to really have much historical verisimilitude. Like, this is a story, it's a myth about sort of the primordial soup that this thing we call America emerged from, which is like, and so, and in that context, I think all the, the rape and the horrible violence, the incest, which is something we haven't talked about, which is made even more hot than the rape. Um, <laughs> and in that context, it all makes a kind of sense, I think. And, um, and the fact that it's, it's titillating seems more acceptable to me. Like, I, I actually think that, that the rape in that is treated pretty sensitively for Monera, you know? Um, yeah. Like, the one facial expression, the best facial expression he draws in that book is the, after, okay, so she gets raped, this is the opening scene, she gets raped on, like, the Am shores. Am I the only one uncomfortable by a bunch of white dudes talking about raping comics like this? <laughs> he said to the all-male panel. Yeah. <laughs> this is what culture is, Robin, okay? <laughs> I know. Enjoy my privilege. Go ahead. Um... <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the best facial expression in this entire comic is, like, after the rape that opens the book, um, this dude who's been watching the entire thing and didn't stop it, who turns out to be one of the main characters of the book, like, blows the Indians away who just raped this girl as they're, like, frolicking in the sea um, and then scalps them and hands the scalps to the girl. And, like, her facial expression is just you there's something of empathy there like what the face what Monera is able to do with that face she just her face just crumbles and collapses and then she she like passes out and she spends like the rest of the first half of the book like sick in bed like in a state of shock and there's you know you get a sense of her experience you get some kind of transpersonal something in there um, and I think that's kind of what like it's because it's so mythic and because it's so sort of nostalgic in a weird way too um and because it plays with such with what in european comics especially are pretty familiar tropes um i think the sort of lack of empathy for a lot of the characters and the kind of like stone-faced downward looking view that it gives into all these really horrible things, child molestation, multiple instances of incest, a lot of rape. Um, the view that it gives into those things is kind of, it's almost like you're, you're like God or something looking down on, on these formative experiences. And, um, and the fact that these characters are just kind of being moved around like pawns is, is really, sort of valuable I think and especially because at the end I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody but at the end um, as the main character who's a girl who wants to commit incest with her brother who refuses as she's dying she has some line that I can't remember the exact thing but it's like I'm dying and I love life so much and you're just in, in that moment she becomes a real person and she's the only real person in the book and that's a hugely powerful moment for me and I think everything else misogynistic though it might be works to set up that completely beautiful moment and that moment kind of 
kind of lets everything else, you know, it's worth everything else, I think. I guess when I'm uh, looking at something like Indian Summer, and I agree that a number of Monero's works are, are kind of about uh, his relationship with fantasy. That's that's what conjoins uh, Indian Summer with The Paper Man, which is the other story in the first book, which is more Milo Monero playing with, like, you know, cowboy comics tropes that I'm sure he loved for much of his life. And then it just has this enormously cruel ending, which just says, this is all fun, but actually the Old West was full of racism and people died a lot. Sorry, the end. Um, and, you know, the Giuseppe Bergman books kind of deal with fantasy and the idea of adventure a lot, or at least the first one does. That's the only one I've gotten around to reading. Uh, I think when I look at uh, Indian Summer, I, you, you know, I wind up, you know, reading it in tandem with this... The, even just looking at the other Monero book, the kind of indoctrination that goes on in the educational comics, I, I can't not see the the societal uh, values that are kind of underpinning this. I think uh, Dan Nadell said about the first Monero book that Monero and Pratt's work were kind of a response even to, uh, you know, societal decorum in Italy of some sort. And, you know, I I don't know, I, I, I can't not see the politics, I guess, behind this. But I understand what you're getting at. I do think Indian Summer is, you know, meant to be a very romanticized and, uh, you know, lovely kind of thing. It certainly has the nicest art, I think, of any of the stuff they've published at Dark Horse so far. What do you think, Tucker? I, I'd agree with that. I, uh, I'm not, I'm not very much of a fan of most of what I've read in, in the, those first two volumes. Um, Primarily, like that first Indian Summer, I feel is uh, there's this. I like the way Matt describes it, but what for me Matt's describing is something that uh, a fable that's much better told in Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, where I get to kind of watch like how civilization is designed and and born out of these like gardens of violence, and and this is such like an internalized sort of violence where it's just. I mean, that's what incest is. It's just like going to war with your own household. And um, and I feel like for this story to work, they, like, I, I don't know, I feel like I keep saying Monera as if I'm blaming him, but I guess in a way it's really Pratt. It's, it's these, you know, these women in there have to, they work so hard to be victims, and while they are victims of a certain kind of societal attack and that sort of thing, like that, the fact that they maintain this constant tether to their, uh, to their uh, captor, captors and everything is just... I mean, so much of that woman's story is is based around her never leaving and and raising children for the like the to throw against the grindstone, you know. And it's just like watch. And after a certain point, I just become exhausted by just the nature of like watching these people be grinded within the gears of that kind of pain. And while I agree that that moment towards the end where she calls out and says she's never been happier is. I think that's a that's a beautiful moment, but I feel like it's one that's it's gone about in such a laborious way that there's really no way for any moment like that not to work because at the end I just want some kind of respite from all this horror. Um, but and then that's that's how I feel about the story. The side thing though is that I look at there's stuff in this book that I had never seen from Monero before, uh, specifically like the all those moments of like the hordes of Native Americans storming. And, uh, and I just would have loved if it's clear that he enjoys much more drawing women in fetish positions. He likes drawing 
asses up in the air. He likes drawing mouths wide open with tongues lolling around. But man, I would have loved to see him do more of that stuff because those like Where's Waldo style drawings are just so gorgeous to look at and they're so yeah. few and far between. Um, but uh, like Foster. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the kind of stuff that I look at and I'm like, oh man, if he if he had been obs as obsessed with this as he is with drawing, you know, a girl getting her panties pulled to the side, like, which at, at a certain point it's like, yeah, I, I got it, man. You're really good at drawing that. Like that's that's totally good on you. But more of those hordes. <laughs> I think I, I, I think uh, Jordorowski did a good job of uh, directing him towards hordes and uh, Borgia. Well, where's the last part, heavy metal? But yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling Dark Horse will have it before Heavy Metal will. Um, did any of you guys read uh, Jodorowsky's and uh, Boke's um, The Bouncer? Oh, yeah. 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 I was just thinking about the, the, the matriarch and the family in Indian Summer and then his their matriarch in, in The Bouncer and just how much more of a complete character you see in the Hugo Pratt-Manera collaboration. And the Jodorowsky one just feels kind of like Let's see well, how I'm, shocking I can make this. Well, I mean, Bouncer is just a total genre riff. It, it's basically a Garth Ennis comic, only, you know, with all of Jordorowski's themes in it. That that might be the most straightforward pop comic he's done, like, ever, possibly. But, yeah. I, I feel I think, like Son of a Gun is pretty, pretty straightforward, too, though. I, you know, I think Son of the Gun was the more, like, kooky Jordorowski kind of thing. It's got more of his... Uh, more of his intense flavor in it. Bouncer's kind of on the level, I think. I, I don't think he was looking to get too deep with Bouncer. But yes, you're right. You're right. Um, I need to do something real quick. So let's pretend this is a pause. All right. And you guys talk about whatever you want to talk about. Talk about Mark Silvestri. And I'll be right back. And then we'll jump into uh, Juiced. Oh, if we're going to talk about Mark Silvestri, I want that on the show. Oh, yeah. Hey, guys, okay. Mark Silvestri is the bomb. I am recording right now, so I'll be right back. You know what else? Robin is ugly. <laughs> and I'll be listening to this. <laughs> okay, you know what I want to talk to you guys about? Oh, I, emailed, I meant to... All right, my email didn't work. I sent out an email to you two and Fife, like, deep in the night um, the other night when I was when I should have been asleep but you guys what do you guys think about Roy Crane man because I was reading that Buzz Sawyer and I think that's like kind of the best cartooning I've ever seen oh yeah yeah like alright it's, uh, it's you said like, that email I, I wrote, wrote you back oh yeah that's right yeah I emailed you later because I was like dude this Roy Crane stuff I mean it's really it's so it's like this weird fusion that's like it's like the best of Hergé's style, American Kirbyist cartooning and Tezuka, but before any of that stuff happened. Yeah, it's it's sad because I think the only like Roy Crane stuff I've read was like the Captain Easy stuff in the Smithsonian book where they're on like the whaling ship, and that thing is fucking amazing. Yeah, That's oh my god, really fucking good. Dude, you have to get that Buzz Sawyer book. It's just fantastic. Yeah, that's it, it, he. He's one of my nine thousand gaps, but yeah, I, I I can totally understand it. Yeah, I haven't read any of that stuff yet. I got it's on the list. Though. I was gonna I was gonna work on it this next couple of weeks. Yeah, it's like all right. It's not really okay. I reviewed it for the journal, and um, and I read like the first. I got the book, and um, 
and I read like the first 50 pages or so. It's like 300 pages in that first Buzz Sawyer book, and um, and it's like it's like Terry and the Pirates, but not as interestingly written. Yeah. Um, and and so it's like whatever you know, World War II comics. Like there's some good racism in there. Um, but other than that, I was like, all right, I know what this is. So I wrote the review, and then I put that book aside. And it wasn't until I was looking through all my shit to see what I was going to sell that I got it out again. And I was like, I literally picked that book up because I was like, oh, this will put me to sleep really good. Um, and I just started reading where I had left off. And like, just as I had stopped reading that book, it stops being about like airplanes flying, and he crash lands on this island, and it's like this jungle princess uh who's like trying to seduce him but also kill him and it's like just his his natural landscapes when he's not drawing like perfect machinery with 20 million layers of craft tone yeah it's like just it's oh my god what he does with the brush and who are you, who are you talking about open spaces is fucking phenomenal like it's literally the best cartooning i've ever seen what are you talking about uh roy crane Roy Crane's Buzz Sawyer. All right, I still need to read some of those. Had a lot of Roy Crane talk when Frank was in town. Yeah, oh. Frank loves Roy Crane too. Well, his email is Captain Easy. That's right. That's right. Ah, yeah, good point. Um. Okay, should we jump back into it? Yeah. the West Sea. We didn't have much idea of the kind of climate waiting. We used our hands for guidance like the children of a preacher, like a dry tree seeking water or a daughter. Nice and sleazy, nice and sleazy does it. Does it, does it, does it every time? 
schließe, leise schließe, das ist, das ist, das ist every time. Had no halo, had no father with a coat of many colors. He spoke of brothers, many wine and women, song of plenty. He began to write a chapter in his story. Nice and sleazy, nice and sleazy does it. Nice and sleazy does it. Nice and sleazy does it. Does it every time. And we're back. This is Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. Um, this is a discussion show, uh, Critics Roundtable, with Matt Seneca, Tucker Stone, and Joe McCullough. Um, we've managed to go through two comics on our list, and we're about an hour into it. Um, these guys like to talk. Thank all of you for joining me. Um, we've been, we discussed the cabbie. Um, and the latest Minara library editions. Now let's go into a smaller book, um, Jus Swartz's uh, latest collection, which name is totally escaping my mind right now because I don't actually is have Is that a all copy. there is? Is that all there is? Why is it so small? So how much how much of uh, that size, though, is determined by him? Like, he all. seems to super closely to... So, yeah, he, he came up with that, right? Yeah, yeah, the size was his uh, call. It does seem overpriced for that small size. When I saw it in the shop, I was surprised it costed that much. It, it's I'm a little. Sh there's a couple other Fantagraphics European reprints that are of equal marking and price coming out. Um, those really weird pop French ones that are like 80 pages and they're going to be 35 bucks. It really, really shocked me. Those are huge though, and those are fantastic comics, by the way. I'm sure they are. How huge are they, though? Are they bigger than uh, a piece of paper? Yeah, like it's like the... 10 by 13. Well, they're made of pieces of paper, so no. <laughs> <laughs> bigger yeah, than an A4 piece of paper? <laughs> A4? Do they use those A sizes in Canada? Uh, not really, no. I'll be honest. When I saw the price on this, I did have like my momentary struggles with it. I mean, obviously, I didn't have to pay for it, so it wasn't that big of a struggle. But um, <laughs> the truth is, like, I look at this and I'm like, you know what? I, I looked at it from the point of view of a guy who's going to be at the shop when it comes out and, you know, is going to say to somebody, yeah, it's really great, and then watch their face as they see that it's $35. But mm. the truth is, it's like, this isn't a $35 book, and there's going to be a bunch more like it the way that Monero book is like a $55, $65 book. Like, this is a $35 collection of this guy's career, his, his you know, his work in comics. And, and you know the title's the joke. Is that all there is? But it's like this is this is it. This is his career. And thirty-five dollars for a guy's body of work. I mean, I just think that that's that isn't too high of a price to pay. Like I think that is like it's a way of saying like no, you have to give respect to to an artist for what they've done. You have to honor that because he's not going to be doing sixteen more volumes. This isn't you know something that's going to be some perennial first volume of a 20 book series like this is it this is his career it should be 35 dollars i wish it was bigger but it's not it's it's what he wanted and i in some ways 
maybe there's sacrifices that could have been made so this thing could sell to more people but I think at the same time it's like you have to like I have to actually live that idea of giving an artist respect and integrity and this is what he wanted and, and that's this is how much it cost that's fine yeah that's well said <laughs> okay that's my rant about the, the price well, what do you think about the comics themselves Tucker because you're the only one who has the book right I, I, know you, has the book? I know you were pretty much knocked out by this no I, I don't I've never even seen a copy in person to be honest but I've heard about this small size second hand but I've heard it well it's, it's very very small it's like remember set to see that little uh, book they put out by uh, the Fantagraphics book by Drew Wayne all right. It's a, little bit, it's a little bit bigger than that. All right. It's actually what is it? It's seven by nine, nine point five. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's it's all like it's all kinds of different stuff. Like it opens up the probably the funniest part you're gonna find in here, Joe, is gonna be in the introduction where Chris Ware, who writes the introduction, admits that there's comics that he, that are in this book that he's never read because they <laughs> have finished translate translating them to English while he's writing the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> that is very good. And then he goes off to tell some anecdote about how they he was at a signing with Jost, and Jost would sit there and spend 10 to 15 minutes drawing these tiny, perfect little comics with his perfect little lettering in the in the front. And Chris was like, yeah, I just, I mean, Chris Ware is already a guy who feels like shit all the time. But then he was like, yeah, it made me feel like a piece of shit because I'm just like, yeah, here you go. Here's Chris Ware. There, I'm done. Get out of my face. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, I, Chris Ware... Uh, uh, Swart had like a pretty big effect on him. I know in uh, that Bill Cardalopoulos uh, raw history thing he did on the internet a bunch of years ago. I think Chris Ware's quoted as seeing like Swart's cover to I think it was Raw number two and just thinking, "Are there new wave comic books?" And that mm -hmm. was like, that, and that was just like the light going on in Chris Ware's head. So yeah, there's a there's a pretty tight connection there. Yeah, that guy I think has been very influential. Um... I was, I don't remember what I was thinking about this, but I think his influence, you can really see it kind of all over the map. Like, this, this, this is going to continue to come up because there's another book, actually kind of two more books we're going to talk about that are like artists kind of calling back to a previous iconic artist style. And like, I think Joe Swartz sort of wholesale, um, swiping of Hergé's style and then doing something really, really new and really, at the time, modern with it um, just had a big effect. Like, if you look at uh, Brett Ewan's stuff in 2000 AD, yeah, he, I yeah. think, totally was just, like, just translating it over and, like, adding a little Kirby. And, Ryan uh, Hughes, too. Ryan Hughes, totally. Yeah, totally. Ryan Hughes, Chris Ware. Um, there was one other dude I was thinking of. But out of the, just like, you know, and honestly, I mean, that's really, except maybe Marty and the cabbie, but I feel like he wasn't as big a visual, a force in visual culture as Swart. I mean, Juice Swart has done New Yorker covers and stuff. Yeah. I think a lot of dudes saw him take that Hergé style and they were like, oh, well, I can do this with my favorite cartoonist. You know, and that comes right up to the present day with like, when Ben Mara first came out, he was like the Paul Gulacy dude. Yeah, it's interesting uh, comparing Swart to uh, 
Chaland in France, who was uh, Yves Chaland, who was kind of a kind of a rock star doing almost the same thing. I, I think there's a technical term, the Adam style, where they were using the uh, clear line, and of course, Swart is the one who came up with the term clear line to uh, Lingua Claire to do this. But um, yeah, they both kind of twisted that to uh, their own, you know, personal kind of comics and. Uh, I mean, Shalon died really young, and I don't think his work has ever caught on in America. It was probably more poppy, more uh, Euro mainstream kind of stuff. But uh, and Swart was sort of the arty guy who got picked up by the arty people. But yeah, there's a there's a huge commonality between them. Tell us about this book, Tucker, because I haven't read it yet. <laughs> no one knows about it. Well, it's uh, basically from a, just a collection story. It's, it's all kinds of different. It's all kinds of different stuff from like it'll have like the his covers and then these tiny little shorts that have it has a lot of similarity to actually if you've ever seen those uh Chalon collections that humanoids put out in uh French but they didn't translate into English that have all his where it just like his style it's it's across the board it's every time you look at it it's like oh yeah that's clearly Joe's throughout the book but there's like little variances throughout in the way that the comics come together and what they're about like there's there's a part in there um, this the part you're gonna like the most, I think, Joe. Is the there's a part when a plane explodes, and it's yes. just kind of a it's a moment that doesn't really mean as much, but it's clearly something that like that's what Shaland was drawing later on when he blew up his own planes. Yeah, then, yeah. There's all kinds of needs, to, but there's the, probably the the most standout story that I think is gonna like speak to most people is gonna be the one that involves a, like a a bunch of uh, a serial killing and a bunch of people trying to commit suicide and being forced into suicide and guys like putting a knife up against the wall and then slamming themselves into it and then this yeah. one series of gags where it's just like hey you know and then this is he killed himself by eating too many plants like it's just a whole bunch of suicides all at once and there's that party I mean it's the funny thing is I wasn't actually raised on Tintin so it's not actually I've come to all this stuff as an adult but even my in my head when I see that clear line style used to depict like brains leaking out of a fractured skull when it's like depicting like uh, at one point, you see uh, one of his recurring characters, um, Jojo. When you see Jojo like positioning his testicles as he like thrust into this one woman, it's just like your brain is like, wait, you're drawing that AirJ style, and you know AirJ didn't draw balls. You know, he didn't draw, <laughs> yeah. he didn't draw brains leaking out of skulls. And it's just there's always a moment of like, whoa. But then like the story towards the end where uh, it's called the leafless tree after an old Dutch folktale. And he, like, merges, like, this Dutch folktale stuff with a, kind of a contemporary setting and all that. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It was, a, it was a dark and silly night. That's the one I'm thinking of. It was a dark and silly night. That's one where he, like, he goes even further with it. It's almost like it looks like he's coloring this whole thing with some kind of markers or something like that. Like, it looks like a child's drawing really, like, a child who can draw really, really well. Doing, like, this yeah. story and, like, there's a taxi cabs and people, like, escaping on a steamer ship and... And some guy's looking around trying to find his head and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, oh, man, like, this is just, it's really exciting stuff. But it's like, it's kind of what my favorite thing is nowadays. And my favorite thing is nowadays is, like, really short comics that try to approximate more like a, like a poem's length or a song's length instead of these things that try to approximate, like, an album length. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's a great book to have with a bookmark, if you know what I mean, where it's, it's not the kind of thing that, I mean, I, 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 you can read it however you want, but for my money, it was like going through this and like taking these tiny little four-page stories at a time was just so much more rewarding than the one time when I was like sitting on the train and I just plowed through 
I would say half the book. I ended up going back and rereading it because it's just so there's so much. I don't know. Just watching the interplay between the panels and the little jokes and everything. I'm looking at it right now, and there's like this one story, the classic thing where like the hot girl has this really piece of shit kid that's always around screwing things up for the cool guy. And yeah. it's just like one of those things where, like, if you could just, it's a classic thing. It's like, if you could just take your kid and throw him out a fucking window, then things would go so much smoother for us as a couple. And she just won't. She's like, no, 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 he's fine. He's fine. And then every time she turns her head, he's sticking out his tongue. It's like, oh, it just, he's able to capture that kind of moment, those like cliches, and make them totally work and do it within the span of three panels. Like, it's like, oh, I know that story. I got it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Really, I, I would recommend this book to anybody. Like, I just, the Chris Ware stuff, yeah, all that stuff is going to be guys like you are going to be able to pick up on that better than I am. But it's it's obvious from looking at it that it's like a guy who's like in complete control of the style that he's using, and that there's no there's no sense that he's trying to figure it out inside the story. There's a sense that all that was kind of like figured out before he sat down to start creating. Now, what is up with these? He uses like little blackface dudes in there, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of stories that have a couple little blackface dudes in it. It's early on. Let me try to find that part. And then there's like JoJo has some weird kind of racialism to him as well. Yeah, the uh waiting for reinforcements, it's like colonial stuff at the beginning. It's How a much... little more even the art is a little more crude and strange and then but I don't know, everybody gets everybody gets their just desserts in that one. So it's kinda like it's not like uh it's not like Tintin in the Congo, where it's like, yeah, they get to the end and they're still colonialist pieces of shit. Like, they get to the end of that one and they're dead. Do you yeah. think he's riffing on the racism in Tintin? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I absolutely. If you're gonna tell a story that involves colonialist pieces of shit um, in the colonies, then you have to draw... Like, they, they're not drawn in, like, a hardcore, exaggerated... Like, I want to look at this. No, actually, they are pretty hardcore, exaggerated. But yeah, <laughs> they're I mean, naked he's tell and they have spears. That, that, that setting, you're going to have to... You're going to have to draw those kind of characters in there. That's also not really... That makes a... That's a pretty small portion of the book. That's maybe, like, seven pages we're talking about here for one story. I guess uh, JoJo also has those kind of characteristics in the same way that, like like Bosco, the old-time cartoon character does, where it's just it, it, it's just become so mannered it, it doesn't even register as a racial caricature anymore, you know? Yeah, it doesn't, and it's not maintained throughout. The one part right. where I think he screws up is he, got, he, he does go a little bit too heavy in a story that doesn't have anything to do with that, where it's just like a character shows up and you're like, I don't really it's like a gasoline alley thing where it just shows up and there's no there's no real explanation for why that character is there. It's just like, hey, there's yeah. a racial caricature because there's a racial caricature. It has nothing to do with the story. Yeah, and speaking of, uh, you know, nice, nice kind of pretty art doing things that seem wrong. I don't know if any of you bought the new Rassel this week, Jeff Smith. <laughs> I am about eight issues behind. But man, <laughs> if, you, if you ever wanted to see serious body horror, Jeff Smith style, like like entrails spilling out of bellies from the author of Bone, this issue is your joint right here. Oh man, I can't wait to read it. It's it, He's got like, it, it's like dimensions are hardening into each other, so like different versions of people are like fusing solidly into each other, so there's like dogs with three heads screaming and like children with nine arms, and, and it's Jeff Smith. It's, it's Jeff Smith. <laughs> when I had him on the show, his description of his upcoming series 
was it's about fucking and death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's not it's not like wacky. It's not like you know, uh, really like crazy amounts of sex and violence. But just seeing like, uh, I guess you know, if I didn't grow up with Bone or anything like some kids today have who think Jeff Smith is the best. But even even me, just seeing like a kind of side view of a lady's breast or you know, just gory violence in Jeff Smith is kind of a trip. <laughs> I'm going to move us on to uh, Crazy Cat. Um, this is something that Matt brought up without any distinction of what we should read for Crazy Cat. He just said Crazy Cat. Um, why, Matt? Well, that's because I've been reading all of Crazy Cat. Um, all right, so my it, it sort of began with the thought that everybody always says, back when we all contributed to the Hood Utilitarian Top Ten Comics Ever list. I'm sorry. And- Oh, did you not, Robin? <laughs> I just don't like the hoodie utilitarians. <laughs> um, well, be that as it may. Um, and I think, Joe, I don't remember if you had Crazy Cat on your list, but... I, I did, I did. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. All three of us had it on our list. And, and you know, it's it's the best comic ever, scare quotes. You know, Comics Journal picked it for that. I think it was number two in the hooded poll. Um, and... And every you know, it's just commonly acknowledged and has been for decades now, the better part of a century, as the high watermark for art in comics. And yet, it's like, and you read it, you know, I read it, and I know why, I can tell why, but I've never read anyone actually being able to articulate like what the fuck is so special about Crazy Cat and words. So I wanted to hear you guys do that because you're my two favorite critics, <laughs> and Robin, you're. Up there too, and, uh, <laughs> but I don't uh, critique. I just blabber. Well, you're—I love your blabber, man. And <laughs> um, and uh, but then since then, reading it for the show, I really—I've—I feel like I figured out Harriman. and I feel like I get it now. And um, and I'm like, and now I'm gonna start working soon on a George Harriman like bio comic. So I especially want to hear about what uh, you guys think of him. Well, I mean, uh, Crazy Cat, it's my, my experience at Crazy Cat began with the uh, Fanographics reprints that started out, you know, in the uh, 21st century. And, um, you know, I, I kind of followed it through different iterations through then where you had, and the Fanographics started out like really late, where it's these like late ish periods, Sundays, the late black and white period Sundays before they switch to color, where he's. He's just gotten so intense into the formula of the strip, and he's gotten so intense into messing around with the formula that there's actually a learning curve to Crazy Cat. I I can't emphasize enough as to how you actually have to struggle through a shitload of Crazy Cat before you even understand what the fuck is going on with this comic. And I think the breakthrough tends to come when you, you can hear Crazy Cat's voice in your head. Like, you can parse his, like wacky style of speaking into like a, a cognizant human like voice I think it's yat like a uh, Creole dialect from around New Orleans where Harriman was born but anyway um, once you can hear that you suddenly understand what's going on in the comic and that's you know that's a horrible shitty cliche like oh it's hard so it must be better than all the stupid simple comics like fucking peanuts but um, <laughs> but, but as much of a cliche as that is I've just gotten so much out of Crazy Cat, so much. Like, 
I, and part of that's an illusion, I suppose. Part of going back and forth in Harriman's uh, career, where uh, I think Atlantic Press or somebody, some small thing, had these little like square brick-like collections of uh, daily strips where he's kind of doing vaudeville routines between crazy and ignats, and they get to be like really intense, like wordplay, like uh, old-time vaudeville routines, and uh, it kind of goes from that jokey style to this really poetical, I would say, type of late Sundays. Uh, Crazy Cat, you can't read it like prose. I think, especially in, you know, our reprint times where all of the reprints are in big, thick books and you kind of read them through. It's like what Tucker said about the Swart book. You, um, you want to read this all through, but Crazy Cat, you have to read it like poetry, basically. You have to read each page as its own self-contained unit and maybe only do like three, four, five at once. Don't try to plow through it or it's not going to work. Uh, part of what helps is that Harriman is an absolutely fabulous writer. I think he might actually be the best pure writer of his generation in comics, one of the only really, really terrific, genuinely gifted writers to work in newspaper comics at that time. And that's when newspaper comics were in a really fabulous state in the early part of the 20th century. And I love, you know, Windsor McKay's dialogue, actually. Uh, I know most people cannot stand it. It's arguably incompetent. I, I really like it just because it's so unrefined. It's like it's like he's trying to translate documentary scenes of what he would hear in New York of like 1915. It's not traditionally good, I suppose, but it's really thrilling to me. But Harriman is different. That dude can actually write for real. And even in comics today, I don't know how many guys you can say like you know if this dude was writing other things that weren't comics he'd he'd still be terrific um it just the just the level of craft behind it is superb not even getting to the art but there's always new things that reveal themselves to me about crazy cat just new twists on the characters relationships uh it's like this eternal circuit of hatred and love i'm sounding like some silly comic academic from decades ago but it's all true <laughs> it's all true with crazy cat man it, it, it turns you into a mess uh i haven't done well at all you do it, Tucker. <laughs> i think uh, i'd second all that especially like when it comes to writing i don't think that there's there's so i, I can't re i honestly i mean i hate statements like this because it's just ridiculous to say this kind of be extreme but i can't think of somebody Who's comparable in terms of uh, in terms of writing to uh, Harriman? I don't think I just I can't think of anyone. I'm sure there is someone. I can't think of someone. I think, I think he Alan operates Moore is the one guy. Who? Alan Moore. In terms of just complexity. In terms of maybe in terms of complexity, but in terms of interest, I think Alan Moore's interests are just they're way. I'm sorry, I just think they're just way more juvenile than what Harriman's interested in. Harriman's like he's going for the, he's going for that basic core stuff he's going for the, the yeah. tough things love and relationship and and then the nuance with which that strip works and like when you and, and we're at a, a place now where there's so much of it that you can look at like the later stuff where he fit he broke things down into like these basic simple constituent parts and it's really like broad almost but he's still working with the same complexity and then you go back to that book they just put out last year the most recent collection which is some of the really early sundays and those are just the numbered ones that have like 22 little bits to tell a story and how it's all it's so much more fragmentary it's so much more plot driven and language driven and then how he figured out to kind of strip those things down and still play the same kind of same kind of emotional modes and emotional moments i mean i think 
the poetry comparison spot on the song for me it's a song like crazy cat was the comic that changed the way that i read comics more than absolutely anything else that i've ever read in comics it's the one that i do like i'm always on the lookout for something for me that that's something in comics that i can return to and find more within and i very very rarely feel like that it exists at all i mean almost everything is genre based almost everything is narrative based and almost everything is like there's just no returnability beyond there's some pretty pictures. Whereas with Crazy Cat, I feel like there's a depth to it that it can be lived with and returned to on a constant basis. I feel like there's there's no amount of overpraise that you can do for that that series. I feel like it's it's one of the rare things. Like honestly, I'm a big believer that anybody's opinion is theirs to hold on their own. But with Crazy Cat, I feel like you can not like it, but to to hold it in in low regard shows a, a lack of investment in reading it. I mean the the just touching on the Alan Moore thing you made the comment Matt the mm-hmm. the big difference between the two like I'm a huge Alan Moore fan and I'm not even going to address the juvenile thing is Alan Moore is heavily written where all the pieces are in there um where with a harem and crazy cat strip it's the opposite where everything is stripped right down to just sounds yeah, but I, I wonder if Matt isn't talking about just pure uh, faculty with language, just how words sound and how they work together. Yeah, when I make the comparison between Harriman and Alan Moore, I, I think Harriman is, is leagues better as a writer than Alan Moore. But when you look at dudes who have written comics, who you get the sense that they're actually gifted as a writer and not just at like manipulating genre tropes or like mm-hmm. – or, or understanding this formula for a 22-page comic or a strip or whatever. I think Harriman and Alan Moore and then, like, maybe Frank King are kind of, like, the... But, no, really, Harriman and Alan Moore are the only ones who really are, like, elevated in that way. And then I think Harriman is, like, elevated even above Moore. Yeah, me, and it's not... Yeah, let me address, let me address that real quick because I don't want that to be just, like, that's the pull quote of what I have to say. <laughs> I, I totally, totally, totally. I'm, I don't think that Alan. I think what Matt just said. I'm totally fine with that. It's it's putting. I, I would I would definitely say that Alan Moore is is an extraordinarily good writer, and he's one of the top best absolute in comics. It's just putting equating him along George Harriman for me doesn't work, and that's why I use that term to kind of dismiss him. But it's not that I'm dismissing him as if he's something like he's a little bit better than Brian Michael Bendis or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying he's not. <laughs> up there with Harriman for me because of maybe what his interest lies within. That's all. Sure, and Moore is a, Moore is a novelistic writer. Harriman's depth, uh, which I think you've said anyway, but Harriman's depth comes from kind of how he plays with language on the page and how these repetitions of his very simple formula having like spread out in crazy a crazy snowflake manner sort of create depth through accumulation and it feels like it's genuine depth not that he's just fucking around you know it's that's it, it, it's something that I can only think of, of him doing in American comics I, I agree I can't think of anyone else even like him I mean even American literature I think like we're making these comparisons like and it, it is true that Moore is novelistic and Harriman is poetic but Harriman uses comics to do something that's completely unique that is not actually like a novel or like poetry even though there are similarities like it's just comics operating at the the highest level they can possibly operate at yeah which is which is 
great when you realize that Harriman was like totally into the stage, totally into movies, totally into vaudeville, but his his comics are just comics, man, you know? Yeah. And that's the beauty of it, though. It doesn't need to be something else. It doesn't need to be, you know, cubist art. It doesn't need to be poetry. It's It's this perfect synergy of comics, which removes all the pulpy contemporaries um, and really stands on its own of like really refining it to this fine point yeah it doesn't reference anything no and that's the thing is like why I have a real difficulty with a lot of comic strips of that time I'm not a big fan of Kniff of Crane you know it looks great but I'm not going to sit and read um, a book of their strips because it just it doesn't grab me and because like the really they're just strips of the era the Floyd Gottfriedson stuff did nothing for me the the Mickey Mouse collections oh dear you're 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 on you're on heretical ground here I'm sorry <laughs> I'm sorry I'm sorry Floyd Gottfriedson is oh, wait wait before, before we get derailed into like what you don't like what what do you <laughs> like about Crazy Cat like what's your take on it Robin I it's that looseness he has it's it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Like the the characters are beautiful. They interact beautifully. Like there's a a dance to his work. There's this otherworldness to it. Like you can tell he's thinking on a different plane. Like in the way that Alan Moore also thinks on a different plane. It's a, they're not on the same plane as we've already established, but there's definitely here's the mind of a cartooning genius. Yeah, I'm not um, very verbose. <laughs> well, no, bringing up that plane actually—that's kind of my like. I feel like I really have like I, you know, for years because I started reading all this stuff. Like those fan that first uh, Fantagraphics Crazy Cat came out. I was like ten years old, so this stuff was all like just there, you know, for me to access, like at the library and stuff. And I would try to read Crazy Cat consistently as a kid growing up and it was just years of frustration like you said Joe there is an element of struggle yeah. I think that everyone encounters because like what are they what are even the words they're saying you know and then like I figured I figured out how to enjoy it but still you know it's it's tough to come up with a read on Harriman you know like a real sort of a a, a summation of what's special about him because he's just he's so talented and and on such a different plane the 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 appropriate reaction really i think is wonder you know but um but i think that that plane that his stories are working on connects back to his own sort of very human biography um and and you can totally read crazy cat knowing nothing about the person who made it and it's and it's still the best comic ever but um but if you know about Harriman and, and what he's doing, I think it, it becomes so much more compelling because if you look at the guy's life, it was just, I, the way I look at it is just incredibly tragic. Like um, he, he was born, uh, G here did a fantastic essay where he basically does the digging and it had always been bandied about that Harriman was an African-American passing as white in a very racist era um, and it it's been established that he was in fact Creole so of African extraction he, he, he was black and Creole uh, more Creole than black in terms of just lineage but yeah 
Yeah, yeah. But in the especially in the uh the legal definition of the day, he was an African American. Yeah, he was colored, and, yeah. Yeah, and thus subject to all the institutional discrimination that came with that. So and yet he did pass for the entirety of his lifetime as white or his professional lifetime at least after moving from New Orleans to Los Angeles um, and and just and reading and just knowing that is is interesting that he comes up with a place where you know it's never clear whether crazy cat is male or female where people switch or characters they're not people switch identities and personalities at the drop of a hat and it's all just accepted and you can be whoever you want to be I think that's really interesting especially the way he incorporates the sort of patois languages of different smaller ethnic communities of America it's like this Harriman's um, Coconino County the setting he uses is really I think this is the utopian America that we all you know like to envision um, it's it's the America where you can be whoever you want to be and make of yourself whatever you want to make and Harriman makes it seem truly magical and truly exceptional and then if you Tucker what you said about his um, the way he pared down his really um, sort of I think of Mark Twain a lot because his early strips are so rambling they're tall tales and then he, he really pared that down into like these uh, it's like Zen koans or something. Those last couple years of strips where he's just where it just gets so simple and he's just like plugging different numbers into this algorithm he's come up with, if you will. And if you look at his biography again, that switch to simpler material comes with like within two years, I think, both his wife and his daughter died, and he ended up living out the last decade or so of his life like living up in the Hollywood Hills alone by himself, drawing a comic every day, so working a seven-day week, and apparently his home just became this, like, sanctuary for different stray animals that he took in and would care for, and um, from what I understand, he became a fairly heavy drinker, um, and there's just this... there's It's impossible to think of him in that setting without thinking of some element, some strong element of despair in his life. And I think you can see that in the comics. There is, you know, a real lowness and sadness there. The starkness of his landscapes, the way when night comes out, the sky just becomes completely black and there's just panel after panel that's like 90% black. Yeah. Uh, but he, unlike Chris Ware, unlike Al Columbia... Unlike, and these are all fantastic cartoonists, but all of the modern day cartoonists, John Porcellino, Dan Clouds, all these guys who sort of use comics as an instrument to take on their own neuroses, their own sadness or anger or grief, and fail because all they can convey is, is those neuroses. Harriman is actually able to use the comics form to create a place of wonder and joy that is real and that that does transport you into a kind of bliss and that makes you forget about the human world that dragged him down so horribly and it's and it, just it, it's comics it, as success you know 
and it's a bliss that that incorporates the darkness into its own body you know but it's it's present but it's not something that really overwhelms or destroys you ever you know yeah it's, it's, not it's a, an it's earned a, it's an earned kind of uh bliss it's an earned kind of wonder because it acknowledges the reality of the situation which bore it forth instead of a fictionalized one where you're where you're just not allowing for the reality of the situation it's it's like a like the way a child would understand like not a child the way like a pre-teenager when something is bad it's the most extreme form of bad when something is happy it's the most extreme form of happy and there's no place for any type of nuance to it where his allows for that nuance is what allows us to relate to it as an adult emotion instead of like like a uh, like a child's or the way a child relates to emotion which is one of much more like a hundred percent or zero percent where her his is one where he's like no that's you're gonna have to find some kind of joy in just the fact that you have to continue moving forward yeah which is a pertinent uh, theme for a continuing comic strip I think uh, Charles Schultz peanuts had a lot of that if mainly through dialogue and uh, characterization I also I'm definitely with uh, Chris Mountaineer and really, really liking Schultz's really late stuff, like in his last couple years, where it's... I hesitate to call it anti-humor, really, but it's its almost this... Um, it, it's not really jokes anymore. It's just these, like... Just these simply put absurdities that occur that I think is, is kind of profound. I think I'm probably making it sound silly and reduced, but I, I found it pretty uh, hard-hitting. No, I think I think with Peanuts, like you find, Peanuts is a a, a great great strip because for a yeah. lot of reasons. But I think I think one of the things that Peanuts has is it it, it resent like it, it works really well because it plays for the cheap seats in, in the sense of like doing really good jokes and being very funny and being very yeah. ever. But then there's also there's a depth to it. Whereas like I feel like with Crazy Cat, like it's just a little more refined in the sense that it's it's deeper and more adult and and more not not more adult but maybe more sophisticated and more mature than uh than peanuts can't peanuts just doesn't maintain that kind of sophistication and maturity i think all the time i think sometimes peanuts is just a joke and that's sometimes he just breaks out the zamboni yeah yeah exactly and and i think that's why there's so few strips today that anybody relates to on the level that we relate to these strips is because strips today when i look at them today they seem to be all based in being joke machines and joke machines just i don't know i i just don't see that many very funny joke machines anymore whereas i think i think you look at something like crazy cat and it was something that that the humor was would come along with the sophistication with the maturity with the art with the beauty whereas yeah i, I don't think it's happening with everything and, and certainly we're not saying, oh, it, it's better because it's kind of dark, but, you know, it, it all kind of exists together very beautifully. No, but I think I think that the darkness is what... I, I think the darkness is also very minor. I don't think we should... I mean, I don't think even Matt's saying that, like, it wasn't like you would read those last well, few... no, cat, no. And it would be really bleak or something like that, but it was more no. like just a hint of that stuff. What is it? Uh, I can't remember who that... But, yeah, it's like, don't... It's like throwing Hitler in, that kind of thing. You know, it's like... You don't want actually Hitler in your soup. Like you just want a little bit of that stuff, just as like a salt. And like that <laughs> darkness is like, if you go too far, the next thing you know, you're just like, well, now all we're gonna do is just talk about Nazis now because you threw that in there. That kind of <laughs> derailed for me. Then I th I think I'm I'm hitting a moment to move us on to uh, to the other side of the pond. Um, thank you for all your insights on Crazy Cat. Um, I still love the strip. 
and I think everyone should too. Um, 2000 AD was something you had brought up, uh, Joe, um, without any particular definition um, of what you'd like to discuss. Yeah, the um, well, I mean, this week is actually the uh, 35th anniversary of uh, 2000 AD's uh, first issue with the awesome space spinner included on the cover. And uh, I thought uh, Tom Spurgeon said something very pertinent when he commemorated that occasion, saying 2000 AD is the kind of comic you can love without really reading or having a lot of access to, because there traditionally hasn't been a lot of access to this uh, area of comics in the uh, United States. Um, I guess what actually pushed me over, and this has been one of the big gaps in my comics knowledge, and I'm like, I, I'm probably never going to be John Lent or anything, but I do kind of want to fill in the gaps in my comics knowledge, and I know 2000 AD was immeasurably important in the development of American comics in the 1980s because the creator's rights uh, situation over there was so fantastically awful that everybody jumped ship and went to D.C. basically and thus changed the course of American, I guess, uh, mainstream action superhero -y comics. And I think there's still a little sense that 2000 AD is kind of uh, the farm team for when people move on to real comics like, you know, Marvel crossover spin-offs or something. And um, and I just really wanted to, to get into what's going on in 2000 AD and kind of learn its history. And kind of what pushed me over was um, I had been following, like, John Smith for a while, like picking up a little of his works, and John Smith is this pro fairly prolific writer for 2000 AD, who's one of probably their big guys who never quite caught on in America. Uh, it seems everything he's tried, every big project he's tried to get off the ground in America kind of went uh, wrong. Like uh, He did a Vertigo series called Scarab, which was sort of fascinating in that it was an attempt to take this very Alan Moore slash Jamie Delano-y purple prose kind of horror comic and turn it basically into like self-contained issue-by-issue literary objects on a horror theme with lots of, you know, verse-like writing and uh, surreal imagery and just intense stuff. It's, it's one of the most, I, I think avant-garde's the wrong word, but it's definitely one of the most progressive things Vertigo ever tried to publish, and it was a total catastrophe as far as I know, both sales-wise and in terms of Smith just getting along with editorial. I think uh, I think it was Stuart Moore or someone was his editor who he got along with, but the higher-ups at Vertigo, it just didn't work, and the series ended after eight issues. Things were published weird, and then he did Vampirella, following up on Mark Millar's Vampirella run, and uh, I saw him on the internet just saying it's a bunch of fucking shit, um... And that was kind of his main American works, but he had these really intense kind of strange comics in uh, England, so I wanted to get into that. I saw that he'd done a new Indigo Prime series in 2000 AD, and I don't know if you realize, but in shops just at that time, they had these like four packs of 2000 AD. That's how they were arriving in America like earlier this year. It'd be literally four issues in a bag, and it turned out four of those issues in one of those bags was exactly the length of the first new Indigo Prime storyline he did. At the same time, Barnes & Noble's, for some unfathomable reason, after the fall of Borders, expanded their comic book, like, floppy comic book section, and they started getting the Judge Dredd magazine. And that's you have to understand, is the entirety of the 2000 AD world. It's two comics. It's the weekly 2000 AD and the monthly Judge Dredd magazine. So I'm like, 
I can get all of these. I can get Judge Dredd magazine easy enough, admittedly five weeks after it comes out in Britain, but I can get it easily. It comes packaged with these little bonus digest books of stuff they figure isn't going to sell in trade paperback form, but is stuff cold, hundreds of pages of stuff cold from the magazine's history. And then, you know, they have a really good digital system, digital subscriptions with 2000 AD. They'll just send you the cbf form or whatever it is where you can scroll through it there's no you know uh, copy protection or digital bookshelf or any bullshit like that they just send you the files and you read them and i just started following 2000 ad and i've really grown to like it i've uh imported a bunch of older books that have uh existed throughout its history i read like every page of douglas wolk's judge dread website where he reviews <laughs> where he reviews every single Judge Dredd book that ever came out in order of the story's chronology. Uh, that was really helpful. And, you know, I, I've just uh, I've just really clicked with it. And I think when I started reading it, they had some good stories. I mean, I don't know how much people actually know about Judge Dredd now, but it's basically Cerebus now, you know? <laughs> like, the storylines are 500 pages long, doled out in, like, six or eight-page gulps every week um they're kind of divided into sub storylines so different artists can take over but john wagner who co-created the character is still writing the whole thing uh it's done in this very dense kind of you know prose thrillery uh conspiracy mode dread has aged in real time so he has he's old he's like old under his helmet and he has this huge long 35 year history of stuff that keeps coming back to bite him through his previous acts of violence bringing down the law it's a little like cerebus but a cerebus that's still kind of like the first trade paperback of cerebus where it's like still an adventure comic kind of kind of making fun of things but it's in a really interesting and compulsively readable state. And then, you know, Smith's Indigo Prime was just my favorite superhero comic of last year. There's just this, this bright, shiny, delightful condemnation of uh, the inhumanity of, like, raised stakes of, like, superhero science fiction action where universes are destroyed and, you know, these guys are above it all and we're the conquerors. And they had, like, Disraeli, who's a real good British artist, doing this funny strip called uh, Low Life about a ragged undercover cop in Japan. And, I mean, the stories are just, just funny to me. Uh, the art tends to be really clear and straightforward, uh, which I sort of like. There's a distinct lack of incompetence in the visual uh, area of it. Um, I guess the stories they're running right now aren't entirely as good as they were a couple issues ago, but, you know, I still like them. I don't know. Have, do, I know Tucker's read a bunch of old 2000 AD, and I know Matt's read a little new stuff. Like, do, do you guys follow it at all? My interaction with 2000 AD is minimal, to say the least. I've read, like, 12 2000 AD comics, like, all the Frank Quitely. This is literally everything 2000 AD I've read. All the Quitely, all the Brendan McCarthy, the Hooligans haircut book they put out yeah, last yeah. year, which I think is one of the it was one of my favorite comics that came out last year and um and like just a couple random issues here and there and like the one or two judge dread trades they had at the local library when i was a kid through but, through those individual issues you turned me on to clint langley and his neo fumetti stylings so. oh yeah. yeah yeah clint langley he's phenomenal i tried to follow him but um i feel like the distro for 2000 ad has gotten better within like the past 12 months yeah um, well, they've started. They've started shipping the. It's pretty. It's still pretty shitty, but they have started shipping out individual issues instead of the four packs. 
Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Simon and so, Simon so, and Schuster yeah. took over. Uh, I pr I'm pretty deep into this stuff. I have been for a while now, but they were back when DC did their thing where DC was publishing Humanoids. They also did a thing where DC published uh, 2000 AD comics as well in a very similar format. And they mm -hmm. put out things like that they knew American comics readers would want, like uh, the Quietly's, Quietly's uh, Shimero stuff. They put out Bad Company. They put out all, just all a range of different things. Yeah. But uh, that was, they, DC handled that as horribly as they handled Humanoids, and it went away. I think it went away even quicker and was even worse than Humanoids. But, uh, now it's Simon and Schuster who are putting it out, and they're they're focusing on the ones that I've had. A, I've actually dealt with some of those guys. Like I sat in, I did a focus group with Simon with um Simon and Schuster and the 2000 AD guys, and um and then I've just I, I'm supposed to be working on this thing for the journal that I've really been delayed with, and so I've read like Thrill Power Overload, which is the bio of 2000 AD and their history written by one of their former editors, and um then I've got I mean I'm I read. I'm keeping I'm keeping up with Douglas Walk's thing as well, and going back and rereading a lot of Judge Dredd stuff that I hadn't. Some of the stuff that I'd missed, like the Chopper collection and that sort of thing. But also just to kind of go through this stuff again, and and then I also keep up with the new stuff as often as I can, which is uh, not as often as I like. But I, I mean, I have bags of I have like one of the artists, uh, Simon Fraser, the guy who does who co-creator Nikolai Dante. Dante. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he gave me a whole year of 2008 because he gets it for free and he's like oh you can just have these so I have a bag of an, an entire year and a half actually of 2008 <laughs> which just, is like uh, 80 magazine. comics yeah it's like and then it's a it's a fucking bag like it's a huge shopping bag full of magazines and all kinds of stuff it's just so much comics but uh yeah yeah and then I'm a big like just to hit the high points like ABC Warriors, I think, is like huge, huge, especially the second volume that Simon Schuster put out, which is mostly Bisley and this weird artist named SMS. Yeah. Um, a lot of Pat Mills stuff like that. He's the writer on a lot of that stuff. I think uh, uh, just looking at the shelf right now of all that stuff. I mean, obviously, Dread's big too, but then, I mean, I think outside of Dread is Nemesis, which was Talbot and Kevin O'Neill and. Uh, John Hicklinton. Uh, John, yeah, but that stuff, like those first two, if you haven't read the first two Nemesis stories, I think you have to read those because that was like an idea where they were like, we're going to do music videos as comics. We're just going to do a comic that's like based around us obsessively listening to a song. And that was what Nemesis was born out of because nobody liked the idea and they only did two of them. And it's yeah. just this crazy alien and humans are the bad guy but it was like they were really into the song by the band The Jam and they were like let's make a song let's make a comic that corresponds to the way this song operates inside our brains as we listen to it and like that's the kind of shit that they would do in 2008 because they have to fill up the magazine from week to week but uh yeah, yeah no I'm a huge I think this stuff is and, and another thing that Joe touched upon and he and I have talked about this before is that 2008's bottom rung level is never as low as what you can find, I think, in American comics. Like, oh, never. Yeah, American comics can get really, really, really bad. And I don't just mean, like, the, the classic whipping post of, like, certain superhero comics, but, like, when you get out into, like, weird indie comics and stuff, like, it can go... The level of competence just goes out the window. Mm -hmm. Whereas with 2000 AD, as bad as it gets, you still comprehend it, you still can follow it, you cannot like it, but it's always, like, it's it's readable in a way that American comics can't always make the same claim. 
Yeah, not everyone's working on the same level, but just just the lineup they have now. They did uh they did a 35th anniversary comic this week, which of course I won't get till next week because even the digital subscriptions are one week behind the uh, new issues in United Kingdom. But just the current lineup they have now, it's it's you know it's two kind of older fan servicey things in both Dread, which just goes on forever, and uh, Strontium Dog, which uh, is another John Wagner, uh, Carlos Esquera creation about a bounty hunter hunting stuff down and those are both old school strips and you know Wagner he's he can be he can be dense in a simplified way sometimes which is a little unsatisfying but he he does really good long range plotting he does good character voices i think he's got this kind of kind of old school classy style of violence in his stories that i think work well and i love Esquera's art he's never seen outside of England unless Garth Ennis is doing something so it's it's always good seeing a lot of his stock kind of cartoon stylings a lot uh Nicolai Dante is another one running which has been running a newer strip that's been running forever and actually is supposed to be finite it's actually ending now where uh uh, Simon Fraser's the artist, and Robbie Morrison's the writer, and he's another one who I think his main U.S. work was some run late into the run of the Authority, and um, it Wild wasn't Cats very too. what in Wildcats, also... yeah, yeah, and it wasn't very well received, but he he's a lot better in 2000 AD. I like the Nikolai Dante stuff, even though I'm coming in at the very end of this adventuresome romp with you know danger and peril and sex. His thing was he brought like more sex to 2000 AD. Um, was kind of his rolling in uh, sort of thing, and then they just have strips by longtime 2000 AD guys. They have uh, the Gray Area by uh, Dan Abnett, who's just um, you know, he, he, he's very competent and very prolific, and that's sort of the, the best I can say about him. Uh, the Gray Area is basically the movie District 9, only with, like, Judge Dreddish super cops growling at things. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it passes the time. It's nothing I'd call a good comic, but it's inspired at times. And then there's Absalom, which is this uh, serial about a really old police officer in uh, London investigating occult things because he's down with the occult. And that's uh, Gordon Rennie writing it, who's a guy who tend to has a lot of really interesting ideas in his comics that inevitably climax with people hitting each other or shooting to no really uh, co uh, covalescent effect, I guess. But, you know, it, it, it's entertaining to read. There's and this sounds like I'm low, I'm totally at low standards here, but there's just a main line of of uh, entertainment in 2000 AD that it just keeps delivering, and it doesn't dip below that. And sometimes it jumps up well above that, like when you know Indigo Prime was running, or even when in other magazines they'd run stuff like Rogan Gosh, which is just my one of my favorite comics of all time. That was one of their family of comics or Hooligan's haircut Brendan McCarthy and Al Ewing who's an interesting writer are doing like a serial in 2000 AD coming very soon it's like an original thing which is going to be pretty interesting oh man I gotta find that then yeah I'll, uh, it, it's coming this year nice yeah alright you guys you both I agree that the, the threshold of quality um for 2018, you're totally right. I mean, not that I've read a ton of this stuff, but everything I've read, yeah, it's like entertaining. It's not, even if it's stupid, it's not dumb, you know? It knows what it's doing and how to accomplish what it's doing. But, and you know, maybe, I mean, even Hooligan's haircut and Rogan Gosh, yeah, that's probably the best thing 
I've read that's come out of 2000 AD. Well, greater but, 2000 AD. That was in Revolver. Right, that was Revolver, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but, I, like, have you guys... I feel like I've never read... And this is actually... Everybody across the Atlantic is about to get mad at me, but I don't think I've ever read a British comic that's, like, truly transcendent the way the very best, like, American comics and French comics and Japanese comics I've read have been. Like, is there anything coming out of 2000 AD that can really stand, you know, up there with, like, the best of the best? Because it all seems so... It all seems to have a voice that's, like, really just straight ahead geared toward entertaining you with, like, the craziest shit possible. Well, I'd say it's uh, analogous to, you know... uh action comics in the United States. I mean, how, how many adventuresome action comics out there really hit the heights, you know? Um, I think yeah, Indigo Prime... Kirby, you know? Like, that's what, what I mean. Oh, yeah. Kirby and stuff. Yeah, no, I don't think any of them are really on that level. Some of them are very good, but, you know, no. That, I mean, you'd call, uh, you know, John Wagner and Pat Wills, Mills tellingly both writers, as the joke goes, were the Jack Kirby and Stan Lee of... Uh, British uh, pop comics, but no, I, I don't, I can't really think of a Jack Kirby type, but then, you know, British comics are a different thing. I guess, I guess Brian Talbot's an interesting character in sort of that way, in that he started out in underground comics and then kind of moved into these long, like, adventure comics and sort of spread out in every direction, every which way, with an almost sort of chameleon-like style, but no, he, he's not the same thing. Uh, no, I don't know. There's always Alan Moore. Sure, sure, but again, you know, he's he's a writer. And all his best stuff. There's a there's a moment oh. with 2000 AD where they hit that like the thing that Joe's talking about, and there's no really way to go into it without going into, like the complete history lesson of it. But it's when the creators struggle when it went down in 2000 AD when it came down to like, do I own this or do you own this? Or what they're putting in the magazine, like that was like more of a. Like, that happened very fast, and everybody knew very quickly. It's like, okay, so if I do it, if, if I do it and I want to own it, this is how much money I get paid per page. And if I want to do it and you're going to own it, then, then I get a lot more money. So it was like, that was kind of the thing. It was like, okay, it's very, very explicit and laid out. It's like, it's like you can either be work for hire or you can be like, Mr. I own my own shit and I own my own ideas. And that happened at a point in the magazine where it was like that was the kind of be going to be the point where it's like is Alan Moore and Grant Morrison are are these guys going to give their great 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 comics to 2000 AD or are they going to take them somewhere else? And 2000 AD was so open about they weren't it wasn't that they were a good good place to work or something like that they were just so open about what a bad place to work they were that it was like people are just like okay so I'm not going to give you my I'm not going to give you my dream comics and we're not going to do Watchmen and V for Vendetta in the pages of of 2080 because I know that there's no fucking way that I get to keep it and so yeah I I don't I don't know that I do agree that there's nothing in there that's transcendent I believe that like I believe that we're so engineered as American comics readers to kind of reject the way 2080 delivers a story in its shorter format and it's and it's more in the brevity of it and the disposability of the author of the artist was so open at the very beginning. I mean, there's all these factors that are stumbling blocks for me as an American reader. But at the same time, if there isn't anything in there that's transcendent, which I'm not saying that that's true, I think it it might have to do with the fact that 
there was never any bullshit with 2000 AD. There was never any moment where people were like, well, maybe this is going to work out for me and it's going to be my thing. It's like, no, they were like, no, it's not going to be your thing. We're going to keep it. It's going to be ours. Damn, that is so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that as another segue towards um, this idea of greater ownership and folks going, okay, I'm just going to put this out myself. And uh, one of the things right now that has some people excited is the relaunch of um, some titles. Rob Liefeld. Rob Liefeld's Extreme Titles. Um, and I'm not talking about Rub the Blood. I'm talking about, uh, so far we've seen Profit and we've seen Glory. Um, by uh, Profit by Brandon Graham and Simon Roy. And featuring upcoming story arcs by uh, Feral Dalrymple and Yanis... Or Yanni... Malonis? I can't pronounce his last name. I didn't even know it was Giannis until... The Old City Blues guy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Yanni. That's how you pronounce his name, apparently, uh, according to Simon. So, uh, And then the uh, glory by Joe Keating and Ross Campbell. Um, did you guys get a chance to read both? Yes. Yeah, I did. So I for... did. Yeah, I did. Joe, go. <laughs> <laughs> And just well, myself, I'm going to stay a little bit out of this conversation because I feel too tied to some of those titles. So let you guys take it on. All right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think Glory and Profit so far are are both interesting to compare to each other and to other stuff in in kind of in how they're different. I mean, first things first. This is like this year's extreme relaunch. It's been labeled the Extreme Comics Rob Liefeld relaunch. Uh, they actually just relaunched one thing, at least one thing. Last year, they relaunched uh, Evangeline, which was a uh, Rob Liefeld concept about uh, an angel who kind of falls to earth and, you know, battles terrible things without the burden of much clothing. And that was relaunched last year. Um... And I, I gotta say, it's a useful point of comparison. It's got this... I don't know if anyone's read the Evangeline relaunch. They just put out the first collection of the first six issues. Has anyone read it? I won't. All right. <laughs> I <Sorry>. have <laughs> they, They've got this artist doing it. He, he's doing all his own art and color. It's uh, Owen Gianni, and he's actually a pretty interesting artist. I think he's a webcomics guy, and he's working in this very glossy and colorful kind of uh, continental Disney manga type thing. Like, if you've ever read Sky Doll, those comics, it, mm -hmm. it's a little like that. And he's doing that with the Rob Liefeld creation, and it's, it's an interesting-looking book. He's, um... It, honestly, one of the supporting characters looks quite a bit like a Ross Campbell type of character design with the mohawk uh, kind of girl. Um, but, you know, there's also... It's still very focused on delivering the kind of fanboy goods, like, you know, the, the characters are still dressed in these ridiculous, revealing costumes, and he kind of errs on the side of, you know, cuteness or, you know, anime-like panty flashes instead of, like, the really, you know, chest-thrust-out kind of grossness you see in some American superhero comics. But there's still, um, I, I, I don't, I guess you could call it an, there's a cheesecake level to it um, that seems really pandering. And when you compare that to Ross Campbell's art on the newly relaunched Glory, of which there's one uh, issue so far, I mean, 
this is an example of how an artist can really affect the tone of the book because th this is just aggressive stuff. And um, Campbell gave this really good interview to uh, Comics Alliance a couple of days ago where he kind of goes into how his art changed and how his thoughts on art were because his earlier work, you know, it seemed that, that all of the characters were just kind of sitting around in a thin glaze of sweat and they, they look like they can just peel their clothes off at any minute no matter the situation and it, it was really egalitarian in that way like it, it happened to men and women there was a lot of different female body types uh i rather liked it myself apparently he's not entirely comfortable with that stuff anymore but glory just looking at the the design of the character he's kind of i guess he has a better costume basic costume to work with but um, it's just this this assault on expectations of what a, a superheroine should look like in American comics. She's you know she's got really huge tough muscles. She's kind of harsh and doll like, and she's kicking tanks. And it's it's really confrontational almost his style of art. Um, it, it's really interesting to look at, and I think that marks the real separation between this relaunch and last year's relaunch, because this one is looking to really turn things over a little, really change things up by applying some unique points of view to the characters. Now, I think Glory, on the whole, when you get away from the art, is a much more conservative book, certainly more than Prophet. Uh, Joe Keating, I think is how you pronounce it. Keating. Is mm -hmm. Keating, is it? Yeah, just Keating. All right, he's uh, the writer on it, and it's a very, very, very straightforward superhero uh, relaunch kind of story where there's a little cross-cutting between this this sort of fangirl uh, uh, reader representation character, I suppose, who you know loved superheroes when she was little, loved Glory, and then she fell out of it, but she she keeps dreaming of it, and now she's got a learn the secrets of glory even though her optimism is fading but then she's going to learn so much about this character and it, it's 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 a little wish fulfillment e i guess in a metaphoric way and it's cut into with all of these scenes of characters discussing backstory and rather opaque images of former glory adventures which i admit could be kind of fun in a surreal way um but I don't think comes off very well in this comic. I think it just comes off as an info dump, if rather well drawn by Ross Campbell. Um, and, you know, it's leading into discovering the secret history of glory. I, I confess I didn't find it very interesting as a story, um, uh, but it's something that I know a lot of people will find interesting who are not me. But I think just on the level of uh, the visual element alone, it's that that's what separates this from the rest of the pack. And I suppose that's what separates the Mike Mignola books, which are often very well written, but they also have a lot of attention paid to how the art works with the stories. And that's something I think superhero comics, maybe just by their structure of having to be like a virtual reality you peek into several times a week, they don't emphasize the... Uh, the way art can work with story or the way art can be its own engine to a comic, its own, like, you know, complementary engine as much as they could or even much at all in a lot of situations. Uh, Prophet is uh, a more interesting comic to me, I think, uh, pretty much because Brandon, I think, has taken the character and uh, just sort of thrown out everything else and put him into the comic he sort of felt like writing, which is, I think, very reminiscent of uh, a Richard Corbin Neverwhere-like sort of uh, straightforward fantasy, sci-fi, barbarian-ish thing, but, you know, with all sorts of personal touches in it, maybe a little awkwardness that makes it 
which is awkward but also appealing. I think the second issue of it was a lot stronger than the first. Um, yeah, that's and you know that has a good artist in the form of Simon Roy, who looks I think on this quite a bit like Guy Davis in BPRD. Oh yeah, that's a good similarity. Yeah. Have you read his previous book, Yen's Atomic Heart? I have. I enjoyed that quite a bit. Uh, I thought he was channeling Jippy a lot more in that. He seems <laughs> to have changed a bit, but maybe it's just the colorist. I don't know. Whose name is Baller Man, by the way. Yeah, Baller Man, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What What did you guys think of, of Glory and Profit? Go ahead, Tucker. Um, well, with Profit, like... I was kind of not. I would say nervous about that book, but I mean, there's a lot of expectation from uh, on my part from that book because it's really like the idea of of taking somebody like Graham, you know, who I thought with King City was. I, I just think in in a way, it's. I mean, it sounds like a shallow thing to say, but I, th I feel like he's doing a new kind of comic in the sense that he's just. It's more unique to his voice and the idea that he's going to collaborate. Like I was really interested in that. And at the same time, I don't care about, I don't know anything about that Rob Liefeld line. I don't, I've never read any of those comics, even the Alan Moore ones. And uh, looking at Prophet, it just didn't look like something I'd care about. And I was really enthused to find out that he was just going to ditch it like that and basically just do like Rip Van Winkle in a, you know, a post-apocalyptic work stainy kind of place. And uh, I don't know, I really, I really enjoyed it. I really, really liked uh, Atomic Heart when I read it. I thought that was... Uh, I just it, it reminded me a little bit of like a like a future shock that kind of thing like a, just a smart sci-fi story with a great twist ending it could have been something that came out of like a long form EC comic um, with great art like I just really enjoyed that and uh, I thought the two of them I agree with Joe too like that first issue like did a great job of setting the mood and kind of building up the kind of like environment and the language the way that comic is going to work and then I thought the second issue was just it just kind of knocked it out of the park too for me like I really enjoyed watching like you know just the way he's going to define those characters and the way he's going to kind of return to these little ideas that he has thrown in there and, and the way that Graham works in a recap within a panel I, I, it just, it's really engaging it's just really smart efficient comics yeah uh, I I kind of wonder if some of the uh, the commentary surrounding it has done it a bit of a disservice because I mean you know, Prophet, it, it's a very, very straightforward comic, maybe the most quote-unquote straightforward thing Brandon Graham has ever been behind. It's it's much less conversational, I suppose, than the comics he's written and drawn on his own. It's it's very much a, uh, a genre comic, a, a very bang-on action comic with this guy navigating perils and kind of being an asshole sometimes and succeeding, but I, I find the value in it, the same value I saw in, you know, some of Corbin's heavy metal work, where the the little the little unique touches to it are what what make it uh, worthwhile. I think maybe some of the commentary surrounding it, uh, pumping it up really really heavy as you know an instant masterpiece, I suppose, is a little a little overblown. I think, but it, it's oh, just very because much, it, very much so. That's kind of I think that uh, from what I've seen from like just a retail perspective, I think a lot of people who are not interested in the kind of comics that um. The Graham and Roy traffic in. Yeah, uh, this is the thing that they assume they're going to fall in love with because the people tell them that this is what they're going to fall in love with, and then they get it, and it's just like a wholesale rejection. It's not what they were looking for, and I feel like that does a disservice to those guys. And that's, but that's classic. That's that's internet. Well, that's fandom. That's, yeah. that's that's the way things are going to be. Like it's going to be built up, and then the wrong audience is going to buy it, and 
sell it out and it's and then they're going to lash out against it and the blame is going to fall on the creators instead of upon the people who act like sheep yeah and the, and the interesting thing on that is they've both been pretty quiet in that aspect i mean i don't know if there's even been any interviews with simon about the book and brandon's been mostly getting more known for making fun of judd winnick than actually promoting his own book yeah yeah and i feel like this guy's covertly like... making fun of judd winnick inadvertently <laughs> If those guys just keep their heads down and just keep making comics, I don't think they have any problem because if there's there is a hunger for the sort of competence and entertainment value that they bring. Mm-hmm. Um, with Glory, uh, I don't really, I don't know. I kind of feel the same way Joe does. It's I feel like that maybe that comic is just not for me, but at the same time, like I was just very confused by that comic. Um, I just felt like I was reading. Um, somebody telling me how great this character is without ever showing me why that character is so great. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I, I felt like I had come in late, but I didn't, you know, come in late in the same way that, like, you know, pick up profit. It's like, yeah, I, I didn't read the first whatever twenty issues that came out back in the nineties, but I still got it. Whereas with Gloria, I was like, I don't get it, man. I don't know what what the hell I'm supposed to get here. Visually, I thought there's something about that way that guy draws that I would like to see. Like uh, more of that character, just annihilating shit, because those little brief glimpses of um, violence were really yeah. interesting. Whereas all that talking shit, I don't, I don't want to look at any of that ever again. I don't need to see that. That's I'm done with that. Well, even on huh? your site, I think uh, someone made the comment that it, it, it's another. What's going on? Oh, nothing. I, I don't know. All right. I'm, I'm totally. You're both cutting out. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, you still there, Joe? I'm still there. Can you hear me? Yeah, now it's fine. I don't know. Maybe there's some internet backlog there. Go ahead. All right, but yeah, even someone on your site, Tucker, kind of said it. It's another superhero comic where you see him standing on a pile of bodies in the front cover, and then, you know, it, it's all talking inside. It's not all yeah. talking, but it's a, a lot of talking and a lot of... Uh, a lot of backstory talking, and you know that this is something that superhero re- people who are really into superheroes really seem to to click with this kind of history of the character, to getting to know the character, and that's that's how the the character in the story, the reporter girl, is positioned. So I think uh, I think it's really immersed in a lot of contemporary superhero licks that I I personally just find totally alienating and alienated me from this comic as well. But you know maybe. Maybe he just knows his audience, man. I think Prophet's a much more out there book, even though it, it's not really out there in a lot of ways, but in comparison, it is. <laughs> Maybe just in comparison to how mainstream comics look today, it fucking is, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Matt? Um, yeah, I... Uh, Glory, I don't like this comic. Um, I don't think it's very good. The front cover is the best part for me, uh, and I I like Ross Campbell a fair bit as an artist. I think he's very talented, and I've quite enjoyed some of the comics he's done before, um, albeit in kind of a removed way. Like, oh, this is cool, rather than just like you know wrapped attention paid. Um, but this this cover is great, and I think he colors it, and that's makes all the difference. The color is very different inside, and it looks kind of plasticky and shiny. Um, in a very, and it's a it's a pretty good color job for uh, for modern mainstream comics, but uh, but it really it does something 
to his art that I haven't seen done before where it kind of takes away the sort of lumpy, almost gritty quality of his marks and it just makes everything look sort of plasticized like a less insanely detailed version of Ed McGinnis. Um, yeah. So I was, uh, and especially after seeing this cover, which I, I can't, I love this cover, it's great. And I totally agree, Joe, with what you said about the way it's really putting it puts the body of its heroine up front as much as any of the cheesecake superheroine comics do, but in a way that's designed to act as a complete rebuttal to those type of comics, which is cool. But um, but inside, I, I felt let down by the art, which was the selling point for me. Um, and yeah, this story, man, uh, there are, I, I don't want to sound insensitive here, but I'm going to say this anyway. Like all the all the people, all the readers who seem who are constantly agitating for a change in the way that female characters are depicted in superhero comics, it just seems so pointless to me. Because like, yes, it's problematic, and of course, it's incredibly misogynistic and wrong, you know. But it's it it seems almost it's like one step away from agitating for a more balanced, uh, tasteful depiction of female characters in, like, hardcore pornography. Like, it, it <laughs> kind of seems, it's like, that's, that's what it is, you know? It is misogynistic. Superhero comics are misogynistic, and it's like, like, there are comics that have wonderfully nuanced female characters, and they're just not the superhero kind. So it and it seems to me like and glory is a rebuttal to that kind of comic, which is cool because, uh, you know, that rebuttal does have some some value to it. But um, it feels like in Prophet, Brandon Graham and Simon Roy. I hadn't read any of the old Prophets either. I knew nothing about the character at all. Same with Glory, actually. Um, they in Prophet they hit the ground running and they're like, we're gonna make a good comic. And in Glory, it's like making a good comic is like the fourth or fifth goal that these dudes had in mind when they made it. It's like, they're like, first we're gonna address this issue of female bodies in superhero comics, and then we're gonna like deal with all this crazy backstory, and then we're gonna like set up our long form story arc, and it's like, oh yeah, and it's gonna be a good comic. And I don't care about any of that other stuff at all. Um, like, I'm not gonna buy the next issue of this, because it wasn't good. Um, Profit though I wasn't I like Brandon Graham but I'm not as crazy about him as a lot of people are I think he's a phenomenal cartoonist um, and I've enjoyed all every one of his comics I've read but I didn't get the same kind of transcendent experience out of King City that I think literally everyone else whose opinion I respect did um, but, but I like Brandon Graham and I was so I was, I was interested to check out this profit book, but I wasn't expecting to be wowed by it, and I kind of was. Um, I think this comic is really great. It is just super competent, but um, but it also you know the world it presents. Like I realized a while ago that like genre doesn't really matter to me, and that's why like the sort of playing around with sci-fi tropes that was so out front in King City kind of left me cold, but setting matters a lot to me and the, the setting is so richly imagined in this comic 
due in large part to Simon Roy and especially the way he's, he textures everything he draws with all these stray marks all over the place. It is very similar to Guy Davis. Um, yeah. You know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of like when they do those weird comics like uh, that are like fake travel journals for explorers and that sort of thing. Like I think uh, like Journey to Mohawk Country is one, but then there's another one too where like it looks like it's some old like almost like at the end of each night that guy, the prophet character is sitting down and drawing his adventures in his own journal. Like he's drawing what <laughs> Yeah, the like caravan looks like, and it's like that's his that's his like way he like finishes off the day. Is like this is what happened today, and then uh, and then I threw the knife and this guy in the back, whatever. Like that, that's what it looked yeah. like to me. Really, really like that. Yeah, totally. And Brandon Graham's narration actually plays into that. There's like a couple points that are I think the best thing about that narration, where it's the and also the almost the comics almost entirely narration. There's very little dialogue in this and there's narration in pretty much every panel that's just saying what the character does, which is sort of it's almost like a callback to Silver Age comics cuz that was sort of the last time that narration was used in that capacity really. But it's like this weird childlike it's like what a kid telling a story about profit in his own little you know, completely disconnected from the previous story's world would say, you know, it's like he, he'll use like incorrect grammar. I think he, he spells something wrong at one point. And, um, and I like that a lot because it, it really gets at the same, like, there's like an authenticity to it. Um, it's not like two dudes from the 21st century on earth saying like, we're going to tell you this crazy story about a sci-fi magical world. It, it really feels like it comes from this place it's depicting and I think I think it, it has a ton of potential the one thing that I I loved this comic as I was reading it and then thinking about it later I realized that this character is like a robot he hasn't had one feeling yet and he hasn't even really done anything but react to his circumstances he hasn't even really made a decision yet after two issues and I think that if this is going to get past just being like really solid genre comics, um, it's going to have to at some point come in with some kind of emotional arc. But I I'm think, more than satisfied. Well, I, think, I, think you have to, I think you have to, like, it's, it's a reaction in a lot of ways. Like, what you're describing, the narration is the feral kid from Road Warrior. And what you're describing, like, a character, like, prophets fall in that same arc that Max follows in Road Warrior. Like, it's going to be a little while before emotion or those type of choices come to play like he's right now he's he's a man on a mission and he that mission is all an internal one there's no reason for him to do anything beyond describe what he sees and move forward it's going to be when something comes up in the way that actually like hinders his ability to to make those choices or he finds out that the motive or the reasons behind his mission doesn't work anymore that you get to see those emotions but i think right now like it's the the way they're telling that story and and what I see in that story is like it's it's classic that particular trope like not trope but that classic kind of format is to not really have any type of emotional reaction to that stuff until later on when he's forced into a position of having one and then you're going to watch that character develop to whatever his next level is yeah totally i agree with that um maybe it's just i mean the road warrior is a movie and this it's already been 2 months so I don't know. I don't even want to be the guy who's like, "Oh, this isn't suited to the serial format," because it is wonderfully. But um, that was the one thing I wondered about. 
Well, it'll be interesting with the next storyline because there's one more Simon issue and then Farrell's doing three issues. And yeah, it's I don't also, know. Uh, it's also worth saying that Prophet, and I've read a little bit of the old Prophets. I'm uh, sorry. That always. What? I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, that well, that was always a series that was kind of defined by its art, or I guess specifically one artist, Stephen Platt, who uh, got kind of wacky on some of those issues. It was like it was like the extreme studio style style, like taken to the extreme, where it's it's almost abstract images of like dudes with huge guns, like shooting the crap out of people. So it's in in that way, it's always been kind of a I guess textural uh, visual type of book i could uh i could actually see stephen platt coming back for one of these brandon graham issues and it kind of working maybe but uh, <laughs> oh that would be amazing <laughs> i mean oh, we, God, we have no. brandon drawing one of them then we have uh farrell dalrymple the old city blues fellow and you know to, sure stephen platt why not he can do it maybe one of those backup stories that he's doing maybe he changed anyway. He turned into kind of a Joe Mad slickster by the end there, and then well, he got out of he comics. Well, didn't he find God, too? I thought that was uh, Chap Yape. Or maybe it was him, too. I don't know. Alex Stevens. <laughs> Alex Stevens found God? <laughs> yeah, so that's what happened to Alex Stevens. Well, that's what happened to Joe Chiapetta, too, but they're not exactly the same style as, uh, as uh, these guys. Um, What's our next one? Do we have another one? We have one more. Okay. I know. We've been going hard. You guys are uh, our troopers. We are on our last of the list. Sticking with the uh, sci-fi is um, from the wonderful Ryan Cecil Smith in Japan is the SF Supplementary Feature. Is that what it was called? SF Supplementary File 2, I oh, believe. there we go. SF yep. Supplementary File 2A through C. Yeah, so um, like, that, like that one issue of Fib, it's actually a miniseries as an issue. <laughs> They're beautiful. I am really impressed by the job that he had done with these, um, with the Rissograph. I mean, we're seeing a lot of folks doing Rissograph comics, and I think this is one of the most successful at it, where he's playing with the colors, and he's really... He's good with his machine, I think. Now, Joe, you just got the one issue. The rest of you guys got the rest. Um, what are some of your thoughts on SFSF? Maybe because I, ha- I haven't read it as, uh, you know, the proper series it is. I, I got it in the closed caption comics 9.5 anthology, which is actually a box full of mini comics that most of them did. Uh, and this was actually the middle issue, uh, Supplementary File 2B. And I I find it, I like to connect it with the uh, context of, I guess, the Brooklyn Comics and Graphics Festival, where I got it, where it's kind of a... Because Ryan Cecil Smith, he, he's based in Japan, and he's doing a very Japanese type of convention comic here. It's a daojinji, which is just a Japanese term for, you know, a mini-comic or a self-published comic, but in... You know, pragmatically, what those things usually are are fan comics, often pornographic fan comics. This one isn't porn. It's actually him doing a version of a uh, Reggie Matsumoto space comic. I think it's Queen Esmeralda's 
which is based on his Captain Harlock series. I, I have dreams every night that Vertical or someone will, I think they're the last hope, Vertical will pick up some of his 70s space opera comics and bring them over because those need to be seen. Viz did some of his 90s stuff years ago, and that's like all that's been seen in America. And, uh, you know, I've seen some of the anime based on Captain Harlock and his other characters. And it, it's a really cool, interesting scene, very heavy on sort of uh, post-war Japanese angst about uh, militarism and, you know, gallantry, what it means to be a man. It's a very manly comics. And Queen Esmeralda is about a woman is the lead character, but there's this kid in it who's, you know, got to live like a free man rather than die like a slave. And so Ryan Cecil Smith basically redraws, I think, this story in his own style and uh it brings out basically the i guess the delicacy of the characters emotions um in a very interesting way it's very lovely and handmade um i mean it's a fan comic it, it's not so much fan fiction as a cover version of something which is a sort of fan fiction um but yeah i, I enjoyed it i think uh I think it was something fun to find at a festival like that because it's so completely something that looks like it it dropped in from another culture, uh, but it's a very fitting part of that culture. So I, I enjoyed it. Matt? Um, yeah, I love this comic. This is probably, if I can count this as a 2012 comic, which the last issue, was it, the last one or two issues came out in 2012, if I can count it as something came out this year, it's my favorite thing to come out so far this year. Um, I think it's. I think he really, really just nails Matsumoto's style, which I agree with Joe that it does. That dude is a cartoonist who needs to be seen over here. He's like sort of Von Baudet meets Tezuka almost, but he's also got this elegance that. Um, that I think I can only equate with the European cartoonist I think needs to be seen, Guido Crepax. And um, Ryan Cecil Smith just kind of steps in and nails this style without losing his own style. And um, th the way that these drawings are put together just fascinates me because you can tell, I think he, he must have certainly watched a ton of Matsumoto's anime too because the gestures and everything are just so spot on. But it's like he isolates the most important and telegraphing parts of Matsumoto's style and then kind of and then barely draws anything else like all these drawings the figures are kind of it'll be like these really quintessentially Matsumoto eyes and hands and uh and shapes and things like that and then everything else will just be these marks that are barely there that are just kind of this confetti of ink on the page and look like they could fall apart at any moment, which is perfect for the, um, for like the, the sort of delicate nature of the story and also for the, um, the way that these comics are actually produced, which they're on, they're all on newsprint with even newsprint covers and they're small and risograph printed, which I think, I think this is my favorite risograph printed comic I've seen so far of the current boom in that uh, printing process um, and it, it feels it's very delicate and even though this this stuff does have a high quotient of like Sturm and Drang space opera material what really stands out is this sort of existential loneliness where it's just characters floating through space 
and leaving death and destruction in their wake. And even I mentioned this uh, after the Brooklyn Comics Fest when I was looking at Joe's copy of number 2B that there are so few shots where you even see a person in this whole comic Mm-hmm. compared to just empty shots of space or planets or machinery or ships flying through these like massive starscapes and um and you really just latch on in this sort of vacuum of of you know recognizable humanity to these sort of subtle emotional arcs that um that are really wonderfully scripted and uh and played out throughout the comic um but there's also a lot of really like badass action and as both of those things the action and the emotions expand um it goes from issue 2a the first one is all printed in this blue ink and then issue 2b is printed in various colors of blue and a little purple and black and by the time you get to the climax in issue 2c where characters are really questioning their fates and they're blowing up planets and stuff it's red and green and purple and blue and black and pink and it just astounds you with every turn of the page what the next page is going to look like um it's really it's adventure exploratory comics as an adventure and as an exploration of what the artist is doing you're very much made aware of what's going on with the art as much as you are in the story and i just think this is a really phenomenal piece of work yeah, I probably have some uh, neurosis about this comic because I, I I'm always thinking about well how much of this is just you know Matsumoto himself I'm responding to because I I don't know did did Smith like you know put in his own dialogue or just I know it's not translated so he might have just done his own translation of Matsumoto I don't know if he added anything at all it certainly reads like a Matsumoto comic or more likely the Matsumoto anime I've seen if you want to see just one you should see the '80s movie the Captain Harlock movie. Uh, my youth in Arcadia, or Arcadia of my youth. What? Excuse me. Said, huh, I'm here. <laughs> Tucker was oh. just saying at the same time as you. All right. Yeah. Uh, that's that. That's kind of the. That's kind of the one. It's short, concise, lots of uh, angst and gallantry, and it's it's sort of yeah. You should see that, or maybe the Galaxy Express three nine movies he did in the seventies. Uh, but anyway, I. I wonder how much I'm responding to Matsumoto himself in this, um, which maybe isn't something I should worry about, because one of the pleasures of this is, you know, seeing the two artists kind of play with each other. I know, you know, fan fiction is, you know, looked down upon for, you know, pretty good reason. Fan art, you know, it's all derivative of other people's works. Um, but, you know, I, I think it can be interesting sometimes. I think it's it's pretty interesting here, even if it's probably, I'd suspect, having not read the original thing, very close to what Matsumoto's actual manga was like. I, I still like seeing Cecil Smith's version. <laughs> Maybe if I'd read more Matsumoto, I'd feel differently. But for now, for something that's barely available in English as it is, that's almost a statement on its own, where if we can't have it translated because it's not going to make money because the manga scene has fucking cratered and it's conservative now, maybe we'll just draw manga ourselves, draw the manga we like ourselves, and that's how we'll release it. So it's got a little of that, too. Tucker, we um, lost you for a little bit earlier. Um, I, I Yeah, you got me right back, though. That was fine. I was maybe 15 <laughs> seconds. Um, what kind thing, of... I, I just... I got a couple things I wanted to say about this one, but first thing I want to say is I just really like listening to Matt describe art 
Like I don't think any I don't know anybody who describes art as well as Matt does. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, ver- thank yeah, you guys. Yeah. Um what I want to say is that I I want how 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 much of SF itself, the actual series, have either of you read? I read Very the little, big issue. The big the, issue? The first one, the okay. purple cover. I, I read the other supplementary file too. Yeah, I just feel like I feel like that uh the one I, I agree with a lot of the stuff you're saying. I feel like this is it reminds me less of fan fiction, but more of what uh I, like I've always heard it called turning, but it's like composition. It's that thing that like Shakespeare and Marlowe would do, is where you take a passage and you copy it, and then you interpret it into something else. You create a story about something that you've copied from something else, and it wasn't considered a bad thing. It was more like a like a something an exercise you would do in school. And I feel like what I'm watching with this with SF SF two, especially because I just know from. Cecil Smith talking about it online that like he didn't originally know how long that last part was going to be like he was figuring this out like this clearly was like some a process that he was going through kind of on the fly and I feel like when I look at this what I see although all that stuff about the Matsumoto is probably true I, I don't know that thing I feel like what I'm watching is him kind of figure out his own influence that you're seeing in the SF series proper where that character who's kind of a Captain Harlock character as a stand-in, and then that boy, that orphan that he finds at the beginning of SF, the one who's, he finds in the hospital. Like I'm kind of watching him go, oh, yeah, you know what? I'm, this character is coming from my memories of Captain Harlock. I'm going to go and chase that reference down and figure out what that reference means to me. Like That's all a lot of me putting words into his head, but I feel like that the relationships are so obviously similar that I can't kind of discount that Like this is a supplementary file to SF, for a reason, and I feel like it is because thematically what he's dealing with is maybe some of the space stuff is there too, but more so is that relationship between kind of the the, the improvisational fuck-around fighter and then the kid, which is kind of like his ward in, in a way, and the kid wants to like go out and be an action hero himself, but isn't quite physically or, or ready to make those kind of decisions. And then in SF, that's actually what you're seeing happen. That's true, that's true. Seeing it as a part of Smith's larger project uh, probably adds to it. That's something I lack, and that's something my perspective here lacks, honestly. We'll do better next time, Joe. No, I I won't. (laughs) I'm going to get worse. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, I'm going to bring us to a close, because we're at two and a half hours. Um, Thank all of you for chatting with me today. Tucker Stone. Joe McAuliffe and Matt Seneca. Um, these boys can all be found in various spots of the internet. Uh, f- factual opinion, um, affected, comics journal. Where else, are you guys? Savage critics. You're there, Tucker. Yeah, yeah. And uh, or you can just go to Bergen Street Comics in Brooklyn and just talk to Tucker there. <laughs> and Matt <laughs> soon too. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna be working at Bergen. Yeah, that's my spot. Nice, nice. I'll actually have to go to that store next time I'm in New York. Do you guys have any good back issues? Uh, no. Yeah, we have a lot. We have lots of great back issues. Good. That's what I want. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen, all for chatting with me today, and I look forward to doing this again. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you, Robin.